0: We had some technical difficulties while recording this episode that weren't discovered until the end of the episode, and so unfortunately we had to download it from the YouTube file, which means that the following episode you're about to listen to isn't in the audio quality that we would like it to be in. Um, It's definitely better than what we recorded, which was just unusable, so uh, hopefully it isn't too bad. Our apologies.
1: Bolton has blundered king declared. All he had to do is sit inside his castle whilst we starved. Instead, he has sent some portion of his strength forth to give us battle. His knights will be horsed. Ours must fight afoot. His men will be malnourished. Ours go into battle with empty bellies. It makes no matter. Sir Stupid, Lord Too Fat, the Bastard, let them come. We hold the ground, and that I mean to turn to our advantage.
0: The ground, said Theon? What ground? Here? This misbegotten tower? This wretched little village? You have no high ground here, no walls to hide behind, no natural defenses? Yet. Yet, both ravens screamed in unison. Then one quarked, and the other muttered, Tree, tree, tree.
1: The Battle of Ice is coming, and Stannis is ready. He's confident, he's experienced, and even the ravens seem to be cheering him on. On the other hand, his army is snowbound and starving, while the army of the Lord of the Dreadfort has sent against him is fresh well supplied and better equipped. While Stannis's force was marching through Westeros' largest forest during a seemingly endless blizzard, the Boltons' frays and their allies sat comfortable in Winterfell's hot spring-fed warmth, while Wyman Wanderley's endless stores kept their bellies full. It would be a mistake, however, to think that the battle hinges on such standard factors. Though the better armor and fresher horses surely matter, There is much about the Battle of Ice that requires a somewhat unconventional thought process. A Song of Ice and Fire has seen many battles, but we haven't seen anything like this. In Part 1, we analyze the politics and power situation in the North, but even the genial and laughable Renly knows that this will only get us so far.
0: The time for talk is done. Now we see who is stronger.
1: And so we will. Now comes the time of troops and commanders. Now comes the time of morale and strategy. Now comes blood and controlled chaos. Now comes the Battle of Ice.
0: So, hello and welcome to another episode of History of Westeros podcast, a podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire book series, as well as HBO's Game of Thrones. Uh, this is part two of our Battle of Ice episode, if you couldn't tell. Uh, if you don't want any spoilers for The Winds of Winter, please turn it off now. We will be using light spoilers. Um, it's not much, but there is some, um, so if you're, if you're worried about that. Stop watching. Yep. <laughs> uh, we have a guest for, with us um, for We're, part two as well as part right. three. It's a guest that you saw in part one. Uh, please welcome Jeff Hartline. Introduce Yay!
2: Hey. <laughs>
3: hey! Happy to be back. Uh, Jeff Hartline, also known as Brenda B Fish to some of folks on Reddit and elsewhere. Uh, founder of the blog Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire. And I'm really excited actually to get started on jumping into this Stanis stuff today because we have a ton of stuff to talk about.
1: Yes, it's a lot of fun. We, of course, have put a lot of time into preparing this, as usual. And before we get started, want to uh, throw a few shout-outs out there for recent donators. Uh, Elizabeth I., uh, Ramsey K., James T., Jason C., Robert J., Phoenix, uh, Tanisha Targaryen, and Daniel S. So thanks a lot, guys. Uh, I know we haven't put out an episode in a little while. It does take a lot of time to prepare these. Uh, we appreciate the support of anyone who can help out financially. It certainly helps put out the episodes a little faster. I would say that if it weren't for your support, this episode probably would have come out another week or two later. So support definitely helps. Um, mm-hmm. And if you guys could uh, kick in a little more, the episodes will come a little faster. That's just how it works. So, uh, but if not, you know, we still love doing this, and we'll do it regardless. So that's how it goes. Uh, a, in a similar vein, we have uh, added some Amazon.com links to our webpage, historyofwesteros.com. There's just a few links in the sidebar there that link directly to products on Amazon that are Song of Ice and Fire related, Lands of Ice and Fire, and
0: the new calendar, the, yeah, the
1: new calendar, the hedge knight books, etc. Uh, and of course, when the World of Ice and Fire comes out, which we all can't wait for, we'll be putting that one up as well. So the way that works is. Anything you buy through that link gives us a small credit and it doesn't cost any more than you would have normally paid. So it's basically a free roll. If you were going to spend money at Amazon buying those things, you may as well help us out in the process because it doesn't cost you a, a penny more. So, but that is not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about the Battle of Ice. Uh, mm-hmm. But one last thing. Uh, the Hymn for Spring uh, is a book that we mentioned in a previous, previous podcast that we that is coming out in, in October. We have contributed an essay to it on the subject of Hall. Jeff has also contributed uh, an essay to it. Why don't you briefly mention the topic and the subject matter there? You know, it's, it's,
3: it's kind of convenient that the topic is related to what we're talking about today.
1: Uh, my essay is called
3: Iron re Reexamining Stannis Baratheon, basically taking that kind of viewpoint that a lot of people uh, have of Stannis of being inflexible and tough and, and hard, and then re-examining that and just coming to the conclusion that, no, he's actually much more pragmatic than we give him credit for. And this, it actually occurs a lot earlier in the story than for, than what a lot of people think and imagine. A lot of people think it occurs after he goes to the wall, but in fact, early on, he's very pragmatic, both morally, diplomatically, militarily, and all sorts of other cool
1: stuff. So, yeah, I'm excited. Well, we love Stannis, so we'll be checking that out. <laughs> Um, So, yeah, folks, look out for that book in October. We'll certainly be talking more about it as it gets a little closer. We'll put up a link on our website to it. But uh, we're very excited to be published. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So let's get into this episode, though. Some might wonder why we're doing this episode at all. Uh, After all, according to John's final chapter in A Dance with Dragons, the Battle of Ice has already happened. A raven arrives bearing a letter. John notes the color of the wax and thinks...
0: Only the Dreadfort uses pink sealing wax.
1: This is that infamous pink letter, and it reads,
0: Bastard, your false king is dead, bastard. He and all his hosts were smashed in seven days of battle. I have his magic sword. Tell his red whore. Your your false (laughs) king's friends are dead. Their heads upon the walls of Winterfell. Come see them, bastard. Your false king lied, and so did you. You told the world you burned the king beyond the wall, Instead, you sent him to Winterfell to steal my bride from me. I will have my bride back. If you want Mance back, come and get him. I have him in a cage for all the North to see, proof of your lies. The cage is cold, but I have made him a warm cloak from the skins of the six whores who came with him to Winterfell. I want my bride back. I want the false king's queen. I want his daughter and his red witch. I want this wildling princess. I want his little prince, the wildling babe. And I want my reek. Send, it, send them to me, bastard, and I will not trouble you or your black crows. Keep them from me, and I will cut out your bastard's heart and eat it. Ramsay Bolton, true-born lord of Winterfell.
3: Well, guys, I think that's it. I mean, Ramsay and his friends won the Battle of Ice. Stannis is now dead. Ramsay has Lightbringer. I mean... <laughs> yeah, and Man- Mance is wearing a cloak made from the skins of the spearwives.
1: So join us next time. We should talk about the Bolton Dominion of the North. Uh, The remainder of this episode will consist of theories on how and why Ramsey is the real Azor Ahai. Now, he'd be be more like Razor Ahai. You know what I mean?
0: (laughs) The stallion that flays the world.
1: (laughs) Okay, just kidding, just kidding. We love to joke around here. There's a number of things to talk about with regards to the pink letter. No, we're not going to talk about Razor Ahai or the stallion that flays the world.
0: Um, Well, first of all, is the letter telling the truth?
1: Right, is it? That's the big question. There's a lot of disagreement as to the author of the letter.
3: We have a number of people who um, don't think it's a truthful document. And we also know that Ramsey himself is kind of, uh, well, he's not kind of, he's a straight-up liar when it comes (laughs) to many things in in the book series. And Tormund Giantsbane, he's no fool himself and a letter besides, realizes this upon hearing it when John reads it aloud.
1: Well, the first thing he says is, har, that's buggered and no mistake which is pretty much the exact thing I said personally when I read that chapter for the first time. <laughs> Tormund and I have a lot in common. <laughs> but then he gets to the point.
0: If I had me a nice, goose, a nice goose quill and a pot of Maester's ink, I could write down that me member was long and thick as me arm. Wouldn't make it so.
1: Obviously not, Tormund. Goose quills increase breast size, <laughs> not penis size. For <laughs> that, you need, wait, wait for it, Cock feathers. Yes. <laughs> That's terrible. So, oh, we're so now, terrible.
0: Yeah, yeah, you are. But <laughs> so not only should we be suspicious of the letter on its own merits, we have this dialogue of Tormund and John that George wrote for us to make sure that we consider that possibility. And on top of that, there are details in the letter that seem leagues out of place.
3: The, the most prominent of these details is the seven days of battle. Can an army fight seven days of battle in the middle of a snowstorm? Three days' ride from
1: Winterfell with a primarily mounted force. That seems pretty unlikely. There are issues all over the wazoo regarding the details on Stannis, but we'll get into some of those later. It, yeah, it's just—it's mm-hmm. a, it's a cavalcade of reasons here.
0: <laughs> yeah, John acknowledges that the letter contains lies, but he suspects that the letter is not a total fabrication saying.
1: He has Lightbringer. He talks of heads upon the walls of Winterfell. He knows about the spearwives and their number. He knows about Mance Raider No, there is truth in there. Some would consider outright believe that
3: Ramsey did not write the letter. Following that line of thinking, if Ramsey is not the author, then well, clearly it's some sort of deception because it's signed in Ramsey's name. That speaks for itself though the possibilities are endless. So either way we look at it, the letter can't be trusted.
0: So here's a partial and by no means complete list of other suspects and the motivations and evidence the fandom has for them as the author of the pink letter.
1: Well, we start with Mance Raider, and Mance is the most common, uh, commonly believed r- author of a letter apart from Ramsey himself, and the reason for that is because he's asking for very specific things that you'd s- that doesn't seem like Ramsey would ask for, like Mance's son and <laughs> Mance's wife, or not his wife, but... Wow, yeah. Uh, yeah, but anyway. Uh, and also, the the Val, used...
0: Val, he's asking for Val on my shirt. <laughs> Val, so, that's right. we got, we got a Val shirt right here. Sorry listening audio, but I'm wearing a Val shirt.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's not one you see very often. There's so many, it, it goes to show how many characters there are in Game of Thrones. Yeah. You see a shirt, you're like, you know, I've never seen a Val shirt before. It's pretty cool. <laughs> anyway, uh, the other things that kind of make it awkward is just the the whole... We know that Stan is... That this talk of the battle is probably just kind of out there. Uh, and... So Mance is a popular uh, person who's named as, the, uh, as a fake author of the letter because he would have a lot to gain by this he 's certainly demanding things that would help him get his own liberty back um, and as as well as the fact that could ramsey possibly could all this be true it just doesn't, it doesn 't necessarily fit uh, we 'll have a little more on that later, but, ba- but right now we 're just trying to go over the, the the basics of who else could have written the letter.
3: Another possibility that a lot of fans think about is, is Melisandra. I think she. Comes across as someone who would manipulate, who has, who has a history of manipulating Stannis into taking action, and others as well, like Jon Snow. So did Melisandre write the letter and then send it off, send it, or give it to a Raven to come back to Winterfell? It's it's hard to say for for her.
0: Yeah, same with Stannis. That's a theory as well. Uh, I myself don't particularly think of. Hi- it is being Stannis, uh, so it's hard for me to even uh, point to it. I, 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 myself, am not a huge fan of that theory. Um,
1: the reason some more. people think it might be Stannis is that it would it, the, the look at the result. The result was that it got John to marshal an army and come south, and that would obviously be to Stannis' benefit because he's marching on the guys that are Stannis is at war with. So mm-hmm. that is, it's more of a look who sends to benefit. It's a follow the money kind of kind of uh, attitude, you see who benefits from this letter, and Stannis is definitely going to be one of the beneficiaries, so of course he's a suspect for having written it. The same goes for Asha. Asha is a a bit more of a crackpot idea for someone who wrote the letter, especially because she's kind of, you know, imprisoned by Stannis. How could she have gotten a hold of a quill and a pen, you know, an ink and all that to write this letter? That's very hard to...
3: Or ravens, too. I mean, there's only two Mm -hmm. ravens left in Stannis's can.
1: Exactly. So Asha is... We mention her because it's a fan theory that's out there, but we really just don't see any way that could be accurate. So we'll we'll mention it and then uh, move on. So it's been mentioned, so we'll move on. So who do we think is the author of The Pink Letter? Uh, I think as a group, we mostly believe that it's written by Ramsey, that it's not a truthful document. And the main piece of evidence, I think, is the handwriting. John sees Ramsay's handwriting in the letter that he receives early in A Dance with Dragons before the pink letter. This is the letter where Ramsay announces to the north it's the same letter that Asha gets a copy of that is declaiming that, you know, Ramsay is pointing out that he's basically got in charge now, <laughs> that he's got uh, uh, Arya, that he's going to marry her and all that, and a bunch of other northern lords sign their signature. Now, it's not clear whether this letter was written by a maester and Ramsay signed it, or if Ramsey wrote it but either way John takes note of specifically takes note of Ramsey's signature and the way it's written and then Asha takes note of it as well it's very distinctly described as a huge spiky hand so when John finds the letter the pink letter late in the in the book he takes no note of the handwriting at all don't you guys think that if the handwriting were different that would stand out i mean John noticed it the first time so if if it was a different handwriting John would notice, so that's a pretty hard detail to get around if you're. Yeah, right, I like to, think I think if John is else.
0: perceptive, I think of him as generally uh, he would notice that. So I think it's not outside the outside the bounds of reality that he would just, that he was distracted, or that someone could forget. Someone someone just could forget what the handwriting looked like, but I I think John I think John would think about that.
1: And I also think that along that point, why did George bother to point out the handwriting mm-hmm. in the first place? if it wasn't going to matter, especially because, like we've said many times in the podcast, if George points something out twice, we should take note. And he pointed out Randy's handwriting twice by showing the huge spiky hand comment in both John's and Asha's seeing of the letter. So, I definitely think George intended for us to take note of that, and then he showed us that that it was. There's nothing to it. It's the the letter is probably what it seems, at least in terms of handwriting. And you know, for uh, that point matter too, um, Ilio Garcia from, from Westeros. That's his big
3: sticking point is that the handwriting is something that John doesn't point out in the letter that he receives in his last chapter. Uh, whether I mean Ilio isn't necessarily George R. R. Martin, but I, it would be as close to a primary source as we have possible outside of the books mm-hmm. and interviews by George R. R. Martin.
1: His opinion certainly carries a lot of weight, I would say. <laughs> um, and so I think that, you know, not to say anything bad about Mans fans, I'm a Mans fan, I th- and Stannis fans as well, a lot of people, I think the theories about other people writing, not that they don't have merit, they do, but I think a lot of it comes from a, a bit of hopefulness, to be honest, and I I'm, I fall victim to that too myself. Nothing wrong with hoping your favorite character. Well, I, you know, there's there's a little bit
3: of evidence too in that you have, you know, Manserader is you know burned by by uh, Stannis and Melisandre in early in A Dance with Dragons. So people are, I think they're hoping for a, a repeat of that in this, where you have Manserader being magically alive or magically not imprisoned or suffering a horrific fate that he probably is, unfortunately, suffering.
1: Yeah, because if he, because if you believe that Ramsey wrote the letter, then you believe that Mance was tortured.
0: Yeah. Not to mention <laughs> all of the spearwives that are with him. Right. Yeah, and a lot of people just don't want to think that what he described happened. <laughs>
1: yeah, and I'm kind and, of in that camp, but that doesn't mean I,
0: yeah, I, I, I don't I feel want like it to happen,
1: but I know where the evidence points.
0: If Ramsey wrote it, I just don't know how he could have known that information and not have Mance and the spearwives. Like, I'd like to think that... Ramsey found this out, and then they got away. But I, I, th- I think he has them.
1: A couple of things that detract from our confidence in Ramsey having written the letter. Uh, there's a small thing about the wax. Now it's pink. Now only the Dreadfort uses pink sealing wax, apparently. Uh, and I don't imagine that pink wax is something that you can just come across easily. Like this is this isn't. You know, there's no <laughs> candle stores around. <laughs> so. The difference is, in the first letter, it's a, it's a button of wax. In the second letter, in the pink letter, it's a smear. I don't know if that matters, but normally you have the signet ring, which makes the seal of the dreadfort, and that would be very distinct. And in the, so in the first letter, the, the distinct button is there. In the second letter, it's just a smear. Now, this is part of what people look at as evidence that maybe it wasn't Ramsey who wrote it, because why wouldn't he have the button? Why wouldn't he have the seal? He's there with, with his father, Roos, who's, who's got that seal. So that's a little bit of a problem. Uh, but it's certainly not enough evidence one way or another. The other piece of evidence that is a bit, that's very unusual, it's hard to get around, is the, is the term black crow. This is very sneaky. In the letter, uh, which we won't read again, but it says <laughs> black crows. He refers to the Night's Watch as black crows. Now, on the surface, that doesn't seem odd at all. But doing some research, if you search the ebooks for the term Black Crow, now this is, correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, you don't find the term Black Crow anywhere in the, in the books except for wildlings. Only wildlings use the term Black Crow. It's only, it's,
3: it's, I think the first time it's used is by Mance Raider in A Storm of Swords in John's first chapter. Hmm. And then you hear it from wildlings as well. I think you hear it from Val once or twice. You hear it from Mance a number of times throughout when, when John's with the army there. And then you also hear it again from the Spearwives as well in *Dance with Dragons*, but you never hear the term "Black Crow" uttered by someone other than uh, than a Wildling. Um, but I mean, the, by this is I think it's a very interesting point, and I think it's the biggest evidence against Ramsey being the author. But for me, it's it's really kind of easy. I mean, maybe it's not easy. Maybe it's actually more complicated than I'm making it out to be. But it seems like Ramsey was in the process of Torturing the spearwives and um, raider and heard the term "black crow" and thought that would be something that would just, you know, rub John the wrong way, and would be a way that he would kind of uh, launch him or encourage John to uh, attack him or, you know, come out and make a unfocused and uncoordinated attack on his position at, at Winterfell. Right.
1: If Ramsay is the author, he's clearly trying to goad John into doing, like, that's that's why he calls him bastard so much. Now, some people like to point out the fact that, well, John, uh, or that, rather, Ramsay doesn't like the word bastard. He doesn't like that word. Well, it's not really true. He doesn't like the word, but he really just doesn't like it used in his direction. He, he uses right. it himself. There, he, there's a, at least one at least once in the books he uses the term bastard casually. It's referring to his own horse. He says, you know, give take care of my horse. I rode the bastard hard. It, just casually. So he, he doesn't actually have a problem with that word. He just doesn't, really, really doesn't want it ref, himself referred to that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with that in mind, it makes sense that he would think other bastards would be just as sensitive mm-hmm. to that. So of course he's going to say bastard, bastard, bastard in that letter, which he does. He constantly calls John Bastard on the other hand, that's what Mance does, too. Mance constantly just calls John bastard. That's just his chosen moniker for Jon Snow. He says, bastard this, bastard that. So, here we are. We still think it's Ramsay... Mance is possible, however. That's I guess yeah. as a collective three-person unit, that's kind of where we settle. I guess that yeah, right that's are. the basics of it. That's how we generally stand. Cool. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on then. That's our thoughts oh. on the letter, and that's going to color how we think this rest of the episode. So,
0: so uh, when George released the Theon sample chapter from *The Winds of Winter*, uh, he made a specific point to talk about the timeline <laughs> of this chapter, and he said, uh, "Quote the chronology as usual." is tricky. This chapter will be found eventually at the beginning of Winds, but as you'll be able to tell from context, it actually takes place before some of the chapters at the end of Dance. And so this almost certainly means that the Theon Sample chapter likely takes place before Jon's final chapter from A Dance with Dragons. So, while we're fairly certain that the pink letter is fundamentally untrue, George has Well, slyly, in our opinion, uh, implied that the pink letter could be true by basically saying that the Theon chapter and, by extension, the Battle of the Crofter's Village take place before John's last chapter, the chapter that he receives the pink letter. In the end, though, signs point to the letter being a poor indicator of what really happened no matter what. Right, (laughs) so
1: as far as evidence for the outcome of the Battle of the Ice, the pink letter requires us to read between the lines. Pun intended. <laughs> it freaks... Oh. Pun intended. Go, of deception, <laughs> either from George, Ramsey, someone else, or everyone. So since we can't take it at its word, <laughs> pun intended, <laughs> we must seek our own conclusions, and that requires a good old-fashioned history of Westeros detailed breakdown. So we'll start with numbers. We'll start with troop counts. Uh, Ramsey Bolton, uh, with his Bolton's phrase, Northmen, he had... It's unclear whether these are his men. It was really, he called them his father's garrison, I guess. Mm-hmm. But 6 he had 600 men with him roughly when he fought Roderick Cassell uh, outside of the walls of Winterfell.
0: Yeah, as he says, uh, My sweet friends, there was a woman promised me if I, br- if I brought 200 men. Well, I brought three times as many and no green boys nor field hands neither, but my father's own garrison.
3: And there's also, a, there's a number of, of uh, soldiers, the phrase that they have at, at hand. We talked about them a lot last week, or excuse me, last week, last time.
2: <laughs> um,
3: it's about 1,400-plus soldiers or so. Um, in A Dance with Dragons, uh, Reek 2, um, Theon observes one group of 400, another group of 1,000 march past him up the, uh, the King's Road. Um, and then there's also the the other unit, the other major unit that um, Bruce Bolton sends out against Stannis are the Manderleys. And the Manderleys have about 300 or so men at them, about 100 landed knights and 200 additional soldiers, which we probably, which we think are probably mounted. But these soldiers, we should be aware that these soldiers are disloyal. They're not. Uh, they're 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 not on the on Bolton's side. I mean, we we went into great detail last time about how. Um, Wyman Manderley is, is plotting against the Boltons and, and plotting to, to swear his swords to to Stannis. But overall we think that our total strength of the Boltons is going into battle, or it's not really issue the Boltons at all. The phrase in Manderleys and and Ramsey Boltons is about twenty five hundred to three thousand uh, swag, which is uh a, an old military term that a a, a, mm-hmm. a sergeant told me when I was a, a long time ago, so that means scientific wild ass guess. So <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: our swag. Which is hands. an appropriate measurement for our situation here. So, <laughs> very good. So, uh, now remember, of course, that whatever happens with the battle, Sreus is still going to have a lot of strength left, even even if the Freys and Manderlees, et cetera, are defeated by Stannis. The bulk of his army and his most loyal troops and his... Northmen, so the troops that are better suited to combat in the North in general, he's holding all that back. That's what he's still got. And remember also that at the beginning, Stannis says that Bolton has blundered. He's sending this bit of strength against him. But, but actually, from Roose's point of view, it, it actually does make sense because there's some things that Stannis isn't aware of. And that made the major thing is that these soldiers that Roose has that sent out, they were already fighting each other. Ran uh rather Wyman Manderly and Hosteen had, you know, had their to-do where Wyman nearly got his throat slashed, you know, to death. He almost died. He barely survived that, only because he had that extra meat down there in yeah. his neck to keep him alive, I suppose. So <laughs> or or at, least, at least we assume as much. Um, yeah, no, it's yeah. possible he doesn't survive that way. I wound. guess,
0: yeah I, yeah, I guess so. I it's that.
3: certainly impossible, so... Now, Aziz, Uh, would you you say the phrase in the Manderlees are literally
1: at each other's throats? (laughs) I would say that, yes, because I can't resist puns, so yes. (laughs) Uh Uh, So, it actually makes sense for us to send these men out because they're at each other's throats, as we say. It's better for them to go out and fight Stannis than each other. So, also, there's the whole running out of supplies, too many men in Winterfell, there's too many horses, there's just too much there, so shedding some excess was good for Roos, especially if it, in doing so he's able to take a few uh, chunks out of Stannis' strength or just defeat him outright. That would be, obviously, his, his best-case scenario. Mm-hmm. So, uh, let's see here. So, uh,
0: so uh, if you're Roos, better to have these men go fight Stannis than continue to fight each other. Uh, as we pointed out in Part 1, time is not on anyone's side, so the Manderlies, and the phrase ride out.
1: If yeah, he were there being ride, that's really important here. Uh, the force sent out against Stannis is mountain? M- mounted. Mountain. They're <laughs> not mountains that ride. I'm uh, sorry, they're mounted. They're So they're more mobile than Stannis' very snowed-in force, and they're heavily armored, which is, you know, they're relatively invincible as far as uh, soldiers in this era could be.
3: And you would think that probably gives the, the phrase and the Manderlies some advantage because Stannis, in the last chapter in Dance with Dragons, we find out he's down to 64 horses, Mm. and his men are just simply not equipped by the substantial wealth of house frey i mean house frey made out big in the war of the five kings and they got lands titles um and money too probably from from the crown most likely um, yeah so and then stannis has a bunch of ragtag
1: soldiers who are starving freezing and you know of course bickering over religion as <laughs> well up there so he has, stannis has about 1000 southron soldiers if we get into the numbers for his army uh, Davos estimates about 1,500 at one point, chiefly Florent men, prior to departure from Dragonstone uh, to the north. Now, this discounting casualties from the battle at the Wall, he, even though that was a you know a crushing victory for Stannis, he had to have lost lost a few men. Um, so, and he had to leave a few behind at the Wall to protect uh, his queen and his interests there. Uh, he took most of the able-bodied men, but he certainly left a few behind. So, let's say he has you know a thousand, maybe 1,200 of that 1,500, uh, roughly.
0: Five hundred or so uh, loyal Northmen of noble houses—you know, the Glovers, the Mormonts, etc.—but right.
3: the biggest thing that Stannis has, the biggest contingent in his army, is the two thousand to three thousand clansmen. Um, you know, John says they have—you can get about 30, three thousand or so clansmen out of the uh, the foothills up in the north, and these guys are the Wolves, the Norries, the Flints, and the Littles, and they're serving as scouts. They're also comprising the bulk of Stannis' infantry force in the battle. Um, and to their their credit, they're extremely fierce fighters, and they're extremely loyal as well. Asha herself, who's our um, vantage point into the Stannis' camp, actually fought them at the Battle of Deepwood Mountain, and she says,
0: Wolves, she thought. They howl like bloody wolves, the war cry of the north. And then there are in the army, there are also uh, survivors from Roderick Castle's army, as we touched on in part one. Um, quote, uh, quote, Fisher folk, free riders, hillmen, crofters from the deep of the Wolf's Wood, and villagers who fled their homes along the stony shore to escape the Ironmen, survivors from the battle outside the gates of Winterfell, men once sworn to the Hornwoods, the Sirwins, and the Tallhearts. And that's um, the letter from Stannis to John.
1: Now, he also has about. 450 Karstark men, or Karstark man-jacks, if you prefer. (laughs) Uh, Their loyalty is in question uh, because, of course, Stannis did away with uh, Arnold Karstark and his family for their betrayal, which we'll touch on a little bit in a minute. Uh, So it's unclear what Stannis is going to do with them. He's not going to let them fight if he distrusts them, but I think he expects to be able to take control of them and that they'll follow him. Uh, they were, you know, they're Northmen and they don't like the Boltons either. They're 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 probably going to follow the the most capable leader around. And I don't think with leaderless, I don't think they're going to be able to unite and turn on Stannis. So it's kind of unclear what role they'll play. But I think if they go on, if they if they fight at all, it'll be for Stannis. And if they're not going to fight for Stannis, they're not going to fight at all. I don't think Stannis is going to screw that up. We also have a few dozen of Moore's Umber's Green Boys. Uh, they're green in battle, but experts in digging pits. Uh, <laughs> and they've already uh, scored a few major casualties there. Uh, Hosteen's horse and Sir Aeney's fray, of course, was a major get. So all together, uh, using our swag method of, of <laughs> estimating the, the number of soldiers here, 42 to 4,500 is what we get at, which is a pretty good number, actually. Uh, it is. But, but as we said, they've got some weaknesses in terms of their supply and and. Equipment. But they're supplying their equipment
3: like it has an effect on them, um, as does the religion, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But Stannis Baratheon doesn't have the disunity that the Bolton contingent has, or the phrase in the Manderleys. And that's despite the fact that he has soldiers from different religions, cultures, and socioeconomic classes. Um, the morale of Stannis' army, though, is pretty low on account of their equipment and food shortages, and also the horrific northern winter. On the equipment side, Stannis departed Deepwood Mott with a pretty substantial host at his back that had spearmen, men-at-arms, crossbowmen, and a
1: sizable contingent of cavalry. And by the time Stannis' army staggered into the crofter's village, it had lost a lot of men, as well as almost all the horses. But you had best choke down some horse
3: feed all the same, or you may soon wish you had. We had 800 horses when we marched from Deepwood Mott.
1: Last night, the count was 64.
0: So in other words, Stannis's army is essentially all infantry.
1: Obviously, they aren't eating the horse meat for fun. They aren't Dothraki, after all. So the food supply, it's a clear indication that we already knew that the food was running short. Uh, there are two lakes near the Crofter's village which provided some fish for the army, but it didn't really take long for over 4,000 men to just em- basically empty this lake of fish. Or these lakes, rather. Huh. Yeah, and the, this
3: also led to Stannis' army getting uh, kind of resourceful with their <laughs> with their food supply. With the fish and their horse meat running out, some channeled their anger their inner Skagoski. <laughs> um, four Peasbury men, which are Stannis' southern soldiers, were caught eating the human remains of sol- of other dead soldiers who were killed by the cold.
0: Yeah, it's, it's rumored that Lord Peasbury himself was engaged in cannibalism too. And uh, prior to this incident, uh, one of Stannis' knights proposed a uniquely R'hlloric solution to the problem of the storm.
1: <laughs> A sacrifice will prove our faith still burns true, sire, Clayton Suggs had told the king, and Godfrey the Giant Slayer said, The old gods of the north have sent this storm upon us. Only R'hllor can end it. We must give him an unbeliever.
0: <laughs> yeah, Stannis has no patience for re- religious divisions in his army, and he dismisses Clayton's idiotic suggestion with his characteristic dry wit.
1: Half my army is made up of unbelievers," Stannis said. "Had replied rather, I will have no burnings. Pray harder."
0: <laughs>
1: but the cannibalism was apparently
3: enough for him. Even Northmen, well, not counting the Skagosi, is of course, are disgusted by this. So he had his men. So he had the man-eaters burned at the stake.
0: But while the food scarcity is one challenge facing the army, the most significant dividing force within Stannis' army is religion. Most of the, of the southern uh, most of the Southerns in Stannis' army are adherents to the Lord of Light. And most of these Lord adherents are fanatical in their devotion to their fiery god. Now, meanwhile, of course, uh, the Northmen in Stannis's army are followers of the Old God. So, surprise, surprise, conflict erupts between the two sides.
3: Even in this place of fear and darkness, the Lord of Light protects us, Sir Godfrey Farring had said,
1: told the men who gathered to watch as the stakes were hammered down into the holes. "'What has your southron god to do with snow?' demanded Artos Flint. His black beard was crusted with ice. "'This is the wrath of the old gods come upon us. "'It is them we should appease.'
0: "'Aye,' said Bid, said Big Bucket Wall. "'Red Ralu means nothing here. "'You will only make the old gods angry. "'They are watching from their island.'
3: "'You northmen brought these snows upon us,' insisted Corliss Penny. "'You and your demon trees. "'R'lor will save us.'
1: "'It doesn't seem to go beyond this, as there is no hint of... You know, actual infighting. Stannis' enforcement of discipline is likely a main factor. Everybody knows that Stannis doesn't fool around. He had men gelded for raping wildlings after the battle at the wall, you know, his own men. So these men who have followed him for a while know you can't break the rules around him. And surely that word has spread. To <laughs> so Sir Godry and others, the sacrifice was likely a boon to their confidence, you know, because they there are all relore followers and any kind of show of relore kind of displays are going to kind of boost their morale. Uh, but, the, but these are zealots we're talking about. They're probably already pretty confident.
0: <laughs> uh, on the other hand, though, burning men at the stake is perhaps not great for the morale of everyone else. Apart from fear of upsetting the old gods, there is the plain and simple fact that men burning alive is horrific. Like, for instance... Asha, she's iron she's tough, she's killed and tortured men, been in battles and faced many dangers, but the burning was too much.
3: Asha Greyjoy could taste the bile in the back of her throat. On the Iron Islands, she had seen priests of her own people slit the throats of thralls and give their bodies to the sea to honor the drowned god. Brutal as that was, this was worse. Close your eyes, she told herself. Close your ears. Turn away. You do not need to see this. The queen's men were singing some pain of praise for Red releur but she could not hear the words above the shrieks. The heat of the flames beat against her face, but even so, she shivered.
1: Now, surely Asha was not the only one who came away from this incident with new opinions on the Red God. Asha notes that even the she-bear, Ali Mormont, loses her appetite after the sacrifice, and she's probably seen worse than Asha. Uh, Now, And, of course, the misery of this experience is compounded by the, the terrible weather. It's so bad in Stannis'
3: camp at this point by by, uh, Asha's last chapter that they're doing what's called a cold count, which is the number of people who have died the previous night from the cold or from the elements or from
1: starvation, I guess, too. And that number of people is getting close to critical mass. Justin Massey looked up from his horse meat. The cold count last night reached 80. That means 80 people died from the cold. That's ridiculous. (laughs) Uh,
3: uh, But... There's one part of Stannis' army that isn't really suffering as badly as everyone else's, and that's actually Stannis' largest contingent, and that's the mountain clansmen. And they, again, they represent about half of, or more of Stannis' army. So while our general perception is that Stannis' army is hurt from the cold, the majority aren't doing that badly in the storm.
0: Yeah, one cool example of how the clansmen are coping with the cold comes from the footwear that they and their horses had. <laughs> Uh, Many of the wolves donned curious footwear. Bear paws, they called them. Queer, elongated things made with bent wood and leather strips lashed onto the bottom of their boots. The things somehow allowed them to walk on top of the snow without breaking through the crust and sinking down to their thighs. Some had bear paws for their horses, too. And the shaggy little garens wore them as easily as other mounts wore iron horseshoes. You know, it's funny that that I gave myself the footwear, part of the...
2: <laughs> so,
0: but, uh, you know, that, that's the most interesting thing to me here. But another major issue within Stannis' army uh, revolves around something that we, in the modern world, are acutely aware of. Divide between rich and poor. Mm. Justin Massey uh, succinctly summarizes the thoughts of many of these knights and nobles.
1: You will not take Winterfell. <laughs> Very confident there. The zealots are still zealots, but... Many have very low morale, like Sir Justin. And of course, he's not really zealous. He's just kind of along for the ride with relore. You can kind of tell from the way he talks. But it's different amongst the lower ranks. Asha observes.
3: Whatever doubts his lords might nurse, the common men seem to have faith in their king. Stannis had smashed Man's Raider's wildlings at the wall and cleaned Asha and her Ironborn out of Deepwood Mott. He was Robert's brother, victor in a famous sea battle off Fair Isle, the man who had held Storm's End all through Robert's rebellion. And he bore a hero's sword the Enchanted Blade Lightbringer, whose glow lit up the night.
0: They're as cold and miserable as nobles, but they feel that victory, like winter, is coming.
1: And they are intimidated by the Flayed Man. Ralor is the god of fire and shadow, and you can't flay fire nor shadow. <laughs>
0: so the tensions within Stannis' army, combined with the weather and pending battle, might seem overwhelming, but from Stannis' Baratheon we see only confidence.
1: I defeated your uncle Victarion and his iron fleet off Fair Isle, the first time your father crowned himself. I held Storm's Zen against the power of the Reach for a year. I took Dragonstone from the Targaryens. I smashed Mance Rayder at the wall, though he had 20 times my numbers. Tell me, Turncloak, what battles has the bastard of Bolt never won that I should fear him? It's kind of interesting for
3: Stannis that he didn't even mention Steepwood Mott, that he had won a pretty great battle mm-hmm. there. It's almost as if he has so many victories he can't even brag about all of
2: them.
0: <laughs> so, let's look a little bit more at Stannis' strengths as a commander. Stannis has broad, diverse military and command experiences.
1: He's been on both sides of a siege, notably holding Storm's End during Robert's Rebellion and barely failing to take King's Landing during the War of Five Kings. He is a good cavalry-slash-maneuver commander. At the Battle of Castle Black, his use of speed and maneuverability on the Wildlings ensured victory in a battle where he was outnumbered 10 or 20 to 1. Uh, he uses surprise, camouflage, and indigenous soldiers to take Deepwood Mott from the Iron Man. It's really interesting. That battle itself, um, he used a lot of... He's really
3: tactically um, proficient. He had reconnaissance, um, utilizing local soldiers who knew the the area better than anyone else. Uh, The terrain, he used the terrain um, uh, during the battle itself. The woods came up fairly close to the wall, and he moved his army through there, um, mostly the Northern Mountain clans at that point. Um, And then he also used people who showed up out of nowhere, the Mormons and the Glovers, uh, and just uh, took the fight. Directly to the Ironborn there, and we imagine he's probably going to be doing the same thing with Roose eventually. You know? uh, he's incredibly tenacious too. Uh, Mathis Rowan, who's a character we won't really talk about too much in the podcast, but he uh, he said it pretty the best about Stannis. He said, "When Mance, when when Mance, when Mace Tyrell laid siege to Storm's End, Stannis ate rats rather than open his gates."
1: Yeah, it's it's what we're getting at here in in general is that Stannis's reputation for bluntness and straightforwardness and and for not bending. Is really refers to his personality, not so much as his strategic planning. He's actually quite flexible, quite sneaky, and quite uh, adaptable. So we want to make sure that that's very clear, that you don't mix up his personality, the way he talks to people, with the way he plans his battles. Uh, on the other hand, he is he can be cautious. Uh, he's a good tactical commander. He can be he can be a little cautious, and Bruce even takes note of that and uh, makes mention of that as far as his own battle plans. He thoroughly thinks through his plans, as we'll see. He doesn't make rushed decisions. Although, we can, we've seen that he does have some weaknesses, and in a sense, this is kind of the opposite.
3: Well, this, this is actually something we might disagree a little bit on. Um, when I was uh, looking at Stannis, uh, I think that he has his biggest issue comes with through his impatience. Uh, when the North doesn't swear to his cause, immediately when he sends out all the ravens throughout the North and only gets the Karstarks backing him, Uh, He decides to embark on a foolhardy plan, taking a bunch of wildlings with him to take the Dreadfort before Bruce Bolton could cross the neck with his main
1: force. Right, and this was foolhardy for many reasons, although to be fair, he didn't know all the reasons it was foolhardy. So personally, I would consider this to have been a calculated gamble, maybe the best option he thought he had. He was willing to to risk it all because he thought that was the right play, not because Mm
0: -hmm.
1: he was just impatient.
0: Yeah. I would consider Stannis to have a touch of impatience, but I think he's also just aware that they just don't really have time to wait. I mean, the true battle is coming, and the weather weather is just getting worse. So I think that that really led him to act more quickly than normal than he would have liked.
3: Yeah, but just uh, just just imagine Stannis though marching south from the Wall to the Dreadfort with two thousand wildlings at his back and a right. thousand Southerns. I mean, I understand why he was he had to act quickly, but at the same time, like he would have essentially every single house in the north would have sworn against him, would have sworn for for Russel and had he embarked on the, his original plan before John yeah. gave him an actual battle plan.
1: Yeah, because John points out that the wild you can't take wild a wildling army through Umberlands. there. The, the umbers hate the wildlings about as much as anybody because they're right on the border. They have suffered wildling raids for thousands of years, and that's just not going to fly with them. So... Anyway, so as far as Stannis' caution goes, though, again, even though impatience and caution are hard to pin on the same person, it is actually true with Stannis. It's come up in a couple different ways. Uh, First of all, it is a double-edged sword, being cautious. On one hand, he makes thorough plans. On the other hand, this sometimes results in him being unable to seize the initiative. Uh, For example, at the chain towers at King's Landing, holding back, waiting for his amphibious force to arrive, that he maybe should have adapted and changed his plans there, and the, the slowdown cost him.
0: Yeah, I mean, John Snow said it best, saying, uh, even ruined, Winterfell itself would confer a considerable advantage on whoever held it. Robert Baratheon would have seen that at once, and moved swiftly to secure the castle with the forced marches and midnight rides for which he had been famous. Would his brother be as bold? Not likely. Stannis was a deliberate commander, and his host was a half-digested stew of clansmen, Southern knights, king's men, and queens. Queen's men, salted with a few northern lords. He should move on Winterfell swiftly, or not at all. John thought. And I just wanted to say something real quick. Um, uh, just a quick technical note. Um, Jeff, if you could uh, mute your microphone at the top when um it, when there's a long section with the two of us. Uh, oh, okay, Because sure. we're getting a little bit of feedback. It's a little distracting. There, um, sure, I'm sorry uh, about just, that. Just, just make sure you don't just like leave it on. It's a little hard to do. But uh, anyways, uh, that's all. No problem.
2: Uh, so uh,
3: okay. So
0: his tendencies.
3: (laughs) Yeah, we um, we we should probably take a quick look at his tendencies and prior strategies to help us get a feel for what he might do at this time. At this time around, Um, as a commander, Stannis generally assumes a strategic position on the battlefield, mostly coordinating battles from the rear. Um, At the the Siege of King's Landing, he was at a. He was.
1: Tyrion suspects that he is at a high point south of the city. Stannis was watching, too, Tyrion knew. He'd never had his, brother's Robert, his brother Robert's thirst for battle. He would command from the rear, from the reserve, much as Lord Tywin Lannister was wont to do. Like as not, he was sitting a warhorse right now, clad in bright armor, his crown upon his head.
0: But there are cases where Stannis will lead from the front and fight alongside his men. For instance, during the Battle of the Wall, Jon sees Stannis' royal standard fly past him during the Battle of the Wall. Hey, that's,
1: <laughs> and through the smoke, another wedge of armored riders came on barded horses. Floating above them were the largest banners yet. Royal standards as big as sheets, a yellow one with long pointed tongues that showed a flaming heart, and another like a sheet of beaten gold with a black stag prancing and rippling in the wind. However, there are, there are some
3: major differences in this situation that Stance is facing at uh, the Crofter's Village. And it's not just the, winter, the weather, the terrain. This is the first time we've seen Stannis on, on defense. Now, sure, we saw him at Storm's End, at the Siege of Storm's End, but he didn't actually like... I don't think there was a single um, sortie against the wall itself. Um, it doesn't really... It makes a poor example... The Siege of Storm's End is a poor example of that. Um, so we can't know too much from his style as we haven't been exposed to relevant aspects of what he does yet.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is at least uh, one major exception, one thing that we've seen him do. Uh, his stern and straightforward, ma- straightforward manner might give the wrong impression, as he is very willing to use trickery. His famous defeat of Victorian Greyjoy in the Iron Fleet was a trap of some kind. We don't know too much about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but And let's not forget his comments to Theon that we quoted in the intro to this episode. Stannis intends to turn the terrain to his advantage somehow.
1: Now, whatever the plan, it's going to depend on his men men to see it through. Even the greatest commanders needs good subordinates. Stannis surely has men very loyal to him, but whether they are good or not is up for discussion. Mm -hmm. Let's take a look at a few of Stannis' underlings, his sub-commanders. These are the ones who will execute his orders, giving commands to the common soldiers in his name, making decisions in the thick of battle where appropriate, etc. The first one
3: we'd like to talk about is Sir Richard Horpe. Um, Sir Richard seems to have assumed the role of Stannis' second-in-command during his Northern campaign. He's a Stormlander by birth. Um, he's famous for killing Dormund, who is Tormund Giant's bane's son at the Battle of the Wall. Uh, <laughs> Hor- Horp is kind of as a, as a fanatical dedication to R'hllor, and is even fearless, as, as Stannis himself notes, his bloodlust.
0: As a squire, he dreamed of a white cloak, but Cersei Lannister spoke against him, and Robert passed him over. Perhaps rightly. Sir Richard is too fond of killing. And let me just just one side note, Dormund.
1: Dormund and Tormund. <laughs>
0: <laughs> too much for me.
1: Yep. Well, Sir Justin Massey is the next one we'll talk about. He is the most prominent of Stannis's subordinates in the campaign due to his talkative nature and his newfound love for uh-huh. Asha Greyjoy. I love. <laughs> uh, and he's, of course, Asha is our window into Stannis and the Dance of Dragons. So anyone who's around Asha a lot is going to be someone we see a lot. So Sir Justin Massey got his start as a squire to Robert Baratheon, which uh, is probably where he got his womanizing nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert was certainly uh, a charismatic fellow, and I imagine younger people around him picked up his habits. Mm-hmm. Now, during the Battle of the Blackwater, it was Sir Justin himself who served as a staff officer to Stannis, and he's the main one who urged Stannis to retreat when, when Tywin and uh, the, the Tyrells showed up uh, in the rear there with fake Renly. <laughs> mm-hmm. But the
3: thing about that makes Justin more interesting than some of the others in his camp. Well, we, we do get a lot of interaction with him and Asha, so he's around a lot. But he's he's a Queen's man, uh, sort of. He's not really terribly devout in his devotion to to R'hllor, and he's really ambitious. Um, his interest in marrying uh, Asha Greyjoy is is not really based on any real love. Uh, he's likely attainted in the south and disinherited from, which means that he's disinherited from his lands. And if, if he was the head of the house of those lands, they would feature the Castle of Stone Dance located at the tip of Massey's Hook. He's Sir Justin, though, not Lord Justin, but he aims to change that. Thus, he's kind of probably looking for a marriage that would boost his standing. A marriage to the daughter of Bale and Greyjoy would certainly increase Massey's standing and could give him lands in the Iron Islands.
0: Though Asha thinks this is unlikely with the crow's eye in power. Yeah. And so when we last saw Justin Massey in The Winds of Winter... He was taking fake Arya to Jon on his way to Braavos. Now that is bound to cause a reaction at Black and the North at large.
1: Yeah, he wanted to stay and fight, but Stannis breaks it down in very plain terms. I have 500 swords as good as you or better, but you have a pleasing
3: manner and a glib tongue, and those will be of more use to me at Braavos than here. The Iron Bank has opened, has opened its coffers to me. You will collect their coin, hire their ships, and their
1: swords. So even if Stannis loses this battle and dies, Sir Jessen will be out there, as he's not going to be at this battle. Uh, he has contingent instructions as well.
0: It may be that we shall lose this battle, the king said grimly. In Braavos, you may hear that I am dead. It may even be true. You shall find my cell swords nonetheless.
1: Now that's interesting. It may even be true. <laughs> this is a phrase we'll come back to. We think it's a clue to Stannis', Stannis trickery that he's got in mind. Something that may... Make it seem like he's dead, but isn't. So, but In, other, in the meantime, uh, we're, as we go through sub subcommanders, we've got, we've also got Sir Clayton Suggs, every, who I'm sure is very popular amongst readers because he's just so women charismatic, especially, especially women. Yeah. yeah. So let's just explain why he's a hedge knight hailing from Flea Bottom. That's great, right? Sir, he's also uh, a scary, yeah, kind of interesting character. He's. He's a misogynist and a sociopath. Yeah. He enjoys torturing women, so... Three
0: for three. I love him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's awesome, right? No, yeah. he is, he's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, yeah, he's no dunk.
3: Dunk the Lunk, that's for sure. Um, he also seems to be a bit of a pyromaniac. He doesn't really care about the Reloric Night Fires on the religious side, but he loves the fires themselves. And yet this, uh, you know, here's, here's his uh, one positive side. This up-jumped hedge knight is a brave man uh, when uh, Tycho Destorius comes to Stannis' camp, he draws a sword to defend Asha and the rest of the camp from approaching cavalry. So he does have bravery going for him.
1: He just went right for them. So that's cool. But a mm-hmm. uh, good guy to have on your side in a fight, but other than that, you don't really want him around. But there he is.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, we also have uh, Godfrey Ferry. Godri, otherwise known as the Giant Slayer, gained his moniker from killing a fleeing that giant mm-hmm.
1: He's a queen's man, and he's devout in his religious practice. He leads the prayer during the famous sacrifice of the cannibals. Uh, Jon Snow has an opinion of Godri. He regards him as particularly vain and arrogant, but he is the, go- the guy leading Stannis' vanguard on the march from Deepwood Mott to Winterfell. So he must be a good soldier, because Stannis does not put incompetence in charge. It is known.
3: It is known, and fortunately for Stannis, he has some pretty competent and badass Northmen alongside of
1: him for the battle to come. Chief among the badasses were these two scouts, uh, Ned Woods and Benjakot Branch. Ned Woods was probably the most important Northman in Stannis' army. Uh, he's a man sworn to House Glover. Uh, Ned was the chief scout of Stannis' army. He was almost certainly the one who found the Crofters' village, and even the Queen's men had a great deal of respect for Ned. As Asha says,
3: Noseless Ned, he was called. Frostbite had claimed the tip of his nose two winters past. Woods knew the wolf's wood as well as any man alive. Even the king's proudest lords had learned to listen to him when he spoke.
0: Now, next to Ned Woods stood Benjicott Branch, another scout sworn to the Glovers. Benjicott is interesting because he's the one that told Stannis and his chief lieutenants how far they were from Winterfell. Also, his name is Benjicott Branch, so that's <laughs> pretty interesting in and of itself.
1: Branch swears we are only three days from Winterfell, Sir Richard Horpe told the king that night after the cold count. Now, real real quick, I want to interject. That's interesting. Uh, something I didn't really think about while we were writing this episode. No, Take note of that difference between how these Stannis' knights are actually trusting in these scouts, whereas prior to this, we have the case of uh, other up-jumped guys in higher positions like Davos, who's an expert at seafaring, yet Stannis' lords did not listen to him at all before the Battle of the Blackwater. So maybe that's because these, these guys are knights and not lords. They're not as proud. They're willing to work with these lower guys, but... It's interesting that this these these dynamics. Yeah, they might of how, just be
0: trusting that they're Northmen and they're not.
1: Yeah, they might just have gotten the hit, Like, look, let's trust the Northmen. Or, or it know, they...
0: could be that Davos really chipped away at there.
1: <laughs> yeah,
3: that's what I was thinking. I think I was thinking that they could be taking after Stannis, who seems to have a perspective of uh, being very um...
0: more meritocracy a little bit. Yeah, he's
3: he? meritocratic than uh, than any of the other lords um, that we've seen so far, even even the Starks or so. Um, yeah, that's
1: the, kind of, that's the kind of organization Stannis runs. <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: um, it's cool, too, is um, that uh, Stannis has these two really talented scouts, you know, the Wolfswood, inside and out. But those aren't the only, really, those aren't the only important Northmen in Stannis' army. Uh PSC's clan chiefs that Stannis asked for him, as opposed to beg, which uh, John made the point to tell Stannis to ask these men to join his campaign, and they, during the march, they kind of transitioned from a role of being political leaders to being subordinate commanders to Stannis himself. Uh, Big Bucket Wool might not have been the best of them, but he was the loudest and the most hilarious, too.
1: Yeah, what a great name. <laughs> Hugo Wall had both an enormous gut and a great love for fighting, especially for Ned's girl. That's not to say that he wasn't above mocking R'hllor directly to the pious faces of the Queen's men.
0: And let's not forget Big Bucket's badassery.
3: I want to live forever in a land where summer lasts a thousand years. I want a castle in the clouds where I can look down over the world. I want to be six and twenty again. When I was six and twenty, I could fight all day and fuck all night. What men want does not matter. Winter is almost upon us, boy, and winter is death. I would sooner my men die fighting for Ned's little girl than alone and hungry in the, in the snow, weeping tears that freeze upon their cheeks. No one sings songs of men who die like that. As for me, I am old. This will be my last winter. Let me bathe in Bolton blood before I die. I want to feel it spatter across my face when my axe ax bites deep into a Bolton skull. I want to lick it off with my lips and die with a taste of it on my tongue.
1: Ah. Yeah, I call that pretty badass. Yep. Mm-hmm. But there are other cl- chieftains now serving in Stannis' army besides Big Bucket. Morgan Little had brought the Littles to Stannis and they were ready to fight. Uh, but by the time the Stannis' army limped into the Crofter's village, Morgan Little had a different motivation for fighting than simply to backstance.
0: This march was madness. More dying every day, and for what? Some girl?
1: Ned's
3: girl, said Morgan Little. He was the second of three sons, so the other wolves called him Mor- Middle Little, though not often in his hearing. <laughs> it was Morgan who had almost slain Asha in the fight by Deepwood Mutt. He had come to her later on the march to beg her pardon for calling her a cunt in his battle, lost, <laughs> not for trying to split her head open with an axe.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you gotta love Middle Little... Yeah, Rest killing for, yeah. is
1: fine, but that was really rude to use that term.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, well, it's nice because even Asha even comments. Uh, she even thinks about you know how she, that term. She doesn't like that term and how she thinks it's funny that men use it. And uh, yeah, even
1: though it's the most part of the, the most the the thing that men value most in a woman. Yeah, is what yeah, they call them. yeah. It's, it is kind of. Yeah. I think it's Sir Clayton Suggs that that it instigates that thought process from her. Yeah, I That's love funny.
0: that. Yeah, uh, I love that line, but I hate that in the show they have her say the word cunt.
1: No, oh, yeah, they do, oh, don't my. they? Darn them. Oh well. But, uh... <laughs> so next up on our pantheon of clan badasses is Artos Flint. He's the second son of Lord Torgon Flint, and if you recall, Torgon is a firm Stannis supporter and was last seen at the Wall for the wedding between Alice Karstark and Sigorn, the, the magnar the new magnar of them.
0: Now, in contrast to Big Bucket, Artos seems somewhat fearful of R'hllor.
3: You Northmen brought these snows upon us, insisted Corlys Penny. You and your demon trees, R'hllor will save us.
0: Or Lord will doom us, said Artos Flint.
1: But not so fearful as to ask completely logical questions and come to logical conclusions.
0: What is your southern god to do with snow? demanded Artos Flint. His black beard was crusted with ice. This is the wrath of the old gods come upon us. It is them we should appease.
1: And then we have Morgan Little again.
0: Another second son and an army filled with second sons, yet not the second sons. Cell sword company. Uh, Morgan is particularly interesting to us because of the relationship of the Littles to the Starks. Uh, now, you'll recall, uh, if you'll recall from part one and Bran's first chapter in *A Storm of Swords*, a Little is in the same cave as Bran, Mira, Jojin, and Hodor.
1: We're inclined to think that this Little uh, shared that information with his clan leadership, so they are more aware of what's going on than maybe even some of Stannis's men.
3: Yeah, and we also, as we previously talked about, Morgan had a run-in with Asha Greyjoy during the Battle of Deepwood Mott. Um but he's but he's very very loyal to the to the Starks, which is important.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So. Mhm. Uh. And finally, rounding out our cast of rogues is the She Bear, Mormont. The She Bear is fierce fighter, even Sir Clayton, the torturer of women, seems cautious in her presence.
1: Yeah, he actually gives her a wide berth. That's something that was kind of sly and subtle. A there. wide
0: berth? Oh, that's yeah,
1: me. that's right. <laughs> See, I'm not the only one who puns her. Either. Yeah. That said, though, Stannis doesn't actually trust female fighter too much. It's one of his weaknesses. Uh, she might not be given an important role in the battle, in other words. Uh, though, That doesn't mean she won't do anything meaningful. Uh, no. Well,
3: it's, the leaders are leaders all the same, no matter what job they hold. Uh, but it's interesting, too, in, in Theon's sample chapter, um, when Stannis is talking with Sir Justin, he tells um, Justin to take Alysanne Mormont with, with him back to take um, fake Arya back up to, to Castle Black so that she would have female companionship. So she'd probably only actually be a part of the battle at all, unless That's the battle true. takes place immediately before Justin leaves.
1: That's a good point. Yeah, she, she's she's good to mention, but like Sir Justin, she probably won't take part in the actual battle itself. Uh, now, uh, so Stannis is normally really good at judging competence, uh, so he wouldn't give, as we said, he wouldn't give command over anything important to, to somebody who's not good. Certainly wouldn't give it to somebody nicknamed Sir Stupid.
0: Which is precisely what Stannis calls the Frey Commander, uh, with the death of Amy's Frey via pit traps. Thanks. Crow food, uh, I mean, Crow Doof. Crow, Crow doof, doof.
1: official name from now yes, on, yes.
0: Official name. <laughs> uh, Sir Hostine Frey uh, is in charge of the phrase now after Annie's died. Uh, born the sixth son of Walter Frey, Hostine is a capable soldier, despite having once been captured by Tywin Lannister and spending t- some time in his dungeons.
3: In addition, in addition, Theon also says Hostine was a bull, slow to anger, but implacable once roused, and by repute, the fiercest fighter of Lord Walter's get.
0: This is the man who attacked Lord Manderly inside of Roos, Ramsey, and plenty of Manderly's men, only stopping when ordered to turn his anger on Stannis instead, saying,
1: As my lord commands, but after I deliver you the head of Stannis, Baratheon, I mean to finish hacking off Lord Lards. So it's pretty safe to say that he's roused. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) so he must be implacable.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But uh, he also has a bad reputation with regards to brain power. Stannis, not one to mince words, says, Angry foes do not concern me. Anger makes men stupid. And Hostine Frey was stupid to begin with. If half of what I have heard of him is true, let him come. Look at Stannis, that gossip monger. <laughs> what do you hear
2: about him?
1: <laughs> so Stannis' confidence could be partly derived from knowing he's up against, uh, but of course his recent rise in confidence can also be traced to a few other things. He's gotten the banker. So he's gotten all this money now, That's got that's a big boost to his cause. He's had the people that were planning on betraying him, that's been revealed to him, so he knows that he's got an edge, because he knows something that his enemies are relying on, that he's pretty much undone. And of course, there's the possibility that distance from Melisandre is, is making a difference. Davos has noted several times that, and this is related to the creating of Shadow Babies, that Stannis just looks older, and this is something like the life is being drained out of him. Something is taken from him when he helps create these babies. And we know that Stannis spends a lot of time in bed with Melisandre in general when they're together. Uh, of course, they're not just making shadow babies every night, but it could <laughs> be that the distance from these you need know, nine the fact- months
0: after all. <laughs>
1: yeah, that they're not together. This could actually be invigorating to Stannis a bit. Just that he's regaining some of his, his vitality. But that's just uh, a slight observation there. So he'd be even more confident, though, on top of all that, if he knew that the Manderley commander is likely going to join him and likely do serious damage to the phrase in the process of switching sides.
3: But we don't know who the Manderly commander was going to be. Manderly himself is a uh, Wyman Manderley is himself in no state to lead soldiers in battle after the wound that Sir Hossian gave him. Uh, but not to say that he wasn't in shape to lead troops before, that considering his, you know... Size, um, But I don't think that whoever leads the Manderleys out of the gates of Winterfell will matter all that much. The main Manderly force is not at Winterfell, but hidden away from the castle. Um, my personal guess for who's going to lead the battle is um, uh, Robert Glover will be leading the Manderly force that's hidden away.
1: So we, we could speculate briefly on who Manderly and Robert Glover might tell about and where Robert might be. Uh, for example, Shirley Wyman told his son Willis... Uh, Willis might be involved somehow in the in, later in the campaign. Certainly uh, he rode to war with Rob Stark. He did spend a long time in prison in Harrenhal, so that, that might you know, affect his capability. But enough time has passed. He's probably okay now. So it's going to be real interesting to see how the Manderlys get involved. There's a lot of unknowables there, and we know that the Manderlys have a lot of strength that they haven't displayed yet. So we'll see. So it could be, in fact, that that army is coming for Stannis For Stannis to help (laughs) Stannis, actually, (laughs) Uh, but according to Theon, another old friend is coming too.
0: Who's coming? Bolton?
1: Lord Ramsay. Theon hissed. The son, not the father. You must not let him take him. Roose. Roose is safe within the walls of Winterfell with his new fat wife. Ramsay is coming.
0: Now we're not convinced that Ramsay will participate in the battle, but in the event that he does, we should give you some background on Ramsay Snow. Never call him that. Oh, right. Well, we should give some bra- background on the military ability of Ramsay of Bolton, as, as he wants to yes, call now, Actually, it. I do make a point to call him Ramsay Snow, because I know he'd hate that. He would despise me. Well, he would probably torture me regardless, so at least maybe then he would just kill me.
1: You'd be fictionally oh, right. flayed. Yeah.
3: It's funny, because Ramsay might fashion himself a bold and daring commander, and a great soldier, but uh, <laughs> we, we think otherwise. As a swordsman... <laughs> Uh, he's not really all
1: that great. Uh, Bruce, his father, puts it best. I have seen my bastard fight. He is not entirely to blame. Reek was his tutor, the first Reek, and Reek was never trained at arms. Ramsey is ferocious, I will grant you, but he swings that sword like a butcher hacking meat. And, of course, and when we go back past his, Ramsay's ability as a soldier,
3: we talk about military, Ramsey's military exploits as a commander, and they consist of the following.
0: Ambushing the six men guarding Lady Hornwood and then kidnapping Lady Hornwood herself.
1: Cowardly taking the persona and clothing of his servant Reek when Sir Roger Cassell arrived to exact justice on Ramsay. And then we can't forget that when he was released
3: by Theon from Winterfell, he brought Dreadford soldiers to save the Ironmen from certain death at Winterfell. Uh, he shows up with the 600 men that we talked about before, takes his friendship to Roger Cassell, and then sets his men on the unsuspected Northmen.
0: Uh... He also, of course, sending Theon to negotiate the surrender of Mo and then flaying the Iron Man he captured.
1: Yeah, if, if only flaying was uh, a requ- requisite skill for commanding, Ramsey would be top notch. But <laughs> anyway, finally, he also failed to find the missing phrase uh, Rhaegar, Simon, and uh, Jared. But what an idiot! Who, who doesn't check the pies when you're looking <laughs> for phrase? I mean, really. Uh, I mean, we, we, we just come to the conclusion
3: that he has some low conning, as Roose says, but he's pretty mediocre a poor soldier and commander. Though if he wasn't somehow lying about the letter, and really did beat Stannis, well, we definitely need to revise our estimation.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, he beat Stannis after? Okay, he made yeah. pretty good. <laughs> yeah.
0: Before he can fight Stannis, though, he has to find him. He might have trouble in the dense woods and blinding snows around Winterfell.
1: In a vacuum? Stannis and the Fraser are equally inexperienced and ignorant of the North, but we aren't in a vacuum, are we? Are we? <laughs> well, it's not, it's, I don't think so. While Stannis has the great scouts we talked about and an army full of Northmen who know the area and are used to the weather, the Fraser led by a man with no experience in the North and without the aid of the awesome local talent. Instead, this Bolton alliance is relying on a map.
3: Yeah, recall that when Stan, that Stannis confirmed the pending double cross through of the Karstarks to their Maester at the Dreadfort, who happened to be
1: with Arnolf Karstark.
0: I will ask you once again: What was in the message you sent to Winterfell?
1: The Maester quivered. A uh, uh, um, um, uh, map, Your Grace. There's
0: only one M map. I, <laughs> I stuttered
1: map. more. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so Stannis knows that Roose and Ramsay know his location, but Roos doesn't know that Stannis knows what he knows. Um <laughs> Ramsay and Sir Hossi may think that they have at least some element of surprise. They also probably think that Karstark is going to turn on Stannis. Unaware that Stannis has snipped out this betrayal via the quivering maester, telling Arnolf, <laughs> his kids and his grandkids.
0: You are dead men. Understand that, the king went on. Only the matter of your dying remains to be determined. You would be well advised not to waste my time with denials. Confess, and you shall have the same swift end that the young wolf gave Lord Ricard. Lie, and you will ch- burn. Choose.
3: Yeah, okay, Stannis, you're pretty epic. We we, we give you that. He's, <laughs> not...
0: He's got so many great little speeches.
3: You do not want to mess
1: with Stannis. If you... <laughs> yeah, I love this, I love this, the wins of Winter chapter, this Theon chapter. Stannis is at his most badass. He's just totally in control. He might. That might be my favorite Theon chapter, actually, as well, from the entire series, is that Winds No, for... it's. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I might have to agree with you there. The weather may be bad as well, of course, but from the Bolton point of view, they think it's Stannis and his men who are suffering from it the most. So they likely feel that the weather is kind of on their side, but this is a mistake.
0: Because if we've learned anything about the North, the geography and weather can be as unpredictable as it is brutal. First, the area in question deserves some attention. The largest terrain feature in the north is a vast forest known as the Wolf's Wood. The Wolf's Wood gets its distinctive name from the omnipresent sound of howling lions heard throughout the woods. <laughs>
2: wow. of course, all, lions. all lions. The lions. <laughs> it's, it's
0: wolves. It's wolves, of course. If you didn't get my show. Uh,
3: it's really interesting because the vegetation contains a lot of, of many varieties of trees, including a few scattered werewoods, something we'll talk about, or one werewood in particular we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, it's dense. The vegetation is super dense. Um, Stannis, when he started his march from Deepwood to Winterfell, he made a really great pace until he hit the Wolf's Until he hit the Wolf'swood, that was really the first part that he started going slowly. And only and Winter just compounded everything there. Um, but just kind of cutting through, you know, cutting through brush essentially, Stannis got really slow very quickly for his army. Um, but when Stannis finally emerged, I, he was still in the wolf's and his long march ended in A Dance of Dragons at a little place known as the Crofter's Village. Mm-hmm.
1: Now this place is described by Asha in the King's Prize chapter. The next day, the King's scouts chanced upon an abandoned Crofter's Village between two lakes. A mean and meager place, no more than a few huts, a long hall, and a watchtower.
0: So as we think of each, as we think each of the places that Asha mentions will be extremely important for the battle to come, let's examine them in some detail. Uh, but first, before we do that, what the hell does crofting mean? What is a crofter?
1: <laughs> you know, it's funny. We were, we were really close to completing this episode writing, in, and it just occurred to me. like, does anyone know what a crofter is? <laughs> does, any, does any of us? So I had to look it up. So here's a little, a little micro segue to real history, though it still exists in the modern world, actually. The practice began in the 19th century. Crofting is a form of land-sharing and food production unique to the highlands and islands of Scotland. So it's only a Scottish thing. Simply put, I, I'm sure I'm missing some details and some nuances of what crofting really is, but it's basically a way to manage the land for a group of people, a large group of people. It's kind of land-sharing, tenant farming in a sense. Uh, it's a, And it's typically done in a place where... Making, creating food is, is a challenge based on the terrain, the climate, the soil, which is a problem in, in the islands and highlands of Scotland. Mm-hmm. So that's why it originated there. So this includes both farmed foods and livestock.
3: You know, it's it's funny. I was when I thought of the Crofter's Village, I thought was, I mean, I'm I'll be completely honest, I thought it was crafts. A crafting village where they created crafts. They did like oh. an arts and arts and crafts. And I, know, I
0: definitely <laughs> lean towards something like that. I wasn't thinking like crafts exactly, but I was like thinking of like weaving. Like I was okay. thinking of maybe more. Okay, more that that, that type of crafts. That
3: makes more sense. I, I still Not like my little arts and crafts idea. Like you do at summer camp or whatnot when we we're. Doing it. Um, <laughs> In Scotland and the and the north of Westeros, they seem to have a, a lot of commonality. So yeah. um, this is one more thing that you can add to the list of things that are common between Westeros and and, uh, and Scotland or historical Scotland. Mm-hmm.
0: So uh, to continue our look at the geography and terrain um, of this particular area, uh, at, this viage, uh, at this village in particular, the ice lakes are probably the most prominent nearby geographical feature.
3: Yeah, From what we can tell, the village was built on an isthmus between the two lakes. The larger lake, the northern lake, has uh, trees growing out of it. One of these trees might come to have quite a bit of significance for events to come.
0: But the most significant feature on the lakes themselves is the great werewood tree coming out of the middle of the northern lake.
1: The Crofter's village stood between two lakes, the larger dotted with small wooded islands that punched up through the ice like the frozen fists of some drowned giant. From one such island rose a werewood gnarled and ancient, its bowl and branches white as the surrounding snows.
0: Due to the sub-freezing temperatures, the two lakes are iced over. Though the ice is thin enough that Stannis' men have been able to cut holes through the lakes to Fish, and this fishing has left the ice in a precarious position.
3: I know them lakes. You've been on them like maggots on a corpse. Hundreds of you. Cut so many holes in that ice it's a bloody wonder more haven't fallen through. Out by the island, there's a place looked like the cheese the rats have been at.
1: He shook his head. Lakes are done. You fished them out. So the northern edge of the spit of land dividing the two lakes, the watchtower, stands sentinel over this bleak environment. The watchtower is significant for a few reasons. Uh, we think that the watchtower was built on the southern shore of the northern lake, due, to, due northwest of the village center. Mm-hmm.
0: If this is where the tower was built, it's likely that the tower's purpose was to serve as a lookout, a holdfast, or both. Uh, we could make a few other guesses if we knew how old the tower was, but alas, we do not. <laughs>
2: yeah, old. But it's
3: something By the time we get to the timeline of Dance with Dragons, though, the Watchtower serves as Stannis' temporary headquarters. Uh, Here, Stannis' planned strategy, interrogated Theon Greyjoy, met with the banker Tycho
1: Nestoris, and and kept a fire burning atop the Watchtower. Quote, she could see the shapes of other tents and lean-tos and the fuzzy orange glow of the beacon fire burning atop the Watchtower, but not the tower itself.
0: Wait, a fire? Why in this world would Stannis want to keep a fire lit atop the Watchtower? Wouldn't that draw the Freys and Boltons down on him? Was Stannis' need of Valor so desperate that he would keep a night fire lit atop a high place?
1: Well, we think Stannis has his reasons, reasons that he's keeping tight to his chest. And we think we've got it figured out, but we're going to keep you in suspense a little bit longer.
3: (laughs) Afterward, the king had retreated to his watchtower. He had not emerged since, though from time to time his grace was glimpsed upon the tower roof, outlined against the beacon fire that burned there night and day. Talking to his red gods. some said, calling out for Lady Melisandre, others insisted, Either way, it seemed to Asha Greyjoy, the king was lost and crying out for help.
0: And, and perhaps he was, in a sense. But that was before the arrival of the banker and Theon, which significantly reversed Stannis' fortunes for the better. Yeah, his fortunes.
1: <laughs> yep. Pun
0: intended. Oh, oh. Pun unintended. This I think the there. is the biggest, most
1: punny <laughs> episode we've done. Bro.
0: Yeah, <laughs> uh, the most recent scene in the tower shows Stannis exuding some major confidence.
1: Now, besides the Watchtower, the only significant real man-made structure in the village besides the small uh, huts is the Long Hall.
0: Small and mean as it was, Long Hall was the largest building in the village, so the lords and captains had taken it for themselves.
3: Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I, 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 I had written this note in our notes, so I think that this is part of uh, George R. R. Martin's indictment of feudal society. Uh, the nobility had a roof over their heads and mm-hmm. uh, shelter from the storm. Albeit uh, it's, a, it's a small one, but the commoners had to endure the elements in the tents. I think, or tents are lean tos I think is how Asha describes it. Um, so yeah, the,
1: probably, some, probably some, of some both. Yeah, <laughs> yeah
3: the, the commoners are out in the cold essentially, and the uh, the lords and the knights have a a long haul, have some shelter over their head, and probably some eventually as well.
1: Uh, eventually, the long haul kind of gets converted to a different purpose, which is to store the Karstark sold the Karstark manjacks. <laughs> It's like a professional sports team, and they're like, "I'm gonna go out and see the Carstark Manjacks game today." <laughs> uh, so that's where that's, that long haul is being storing those 450 men until Stannis figures out what to do. Hockey? <laughs> Assuming he can figure out whether they're gonna be loyal or not. So.
3: But the buildings still are significant, though. Um, in the midst of the blizzard, Asha can only barely make out the lo- the Watchtower from the Long haul. Uh, this could indicate that the Long Hall is a great distance away from the Watchtower or more likely that the Swirling Blizzard is dropping visibility down to nothing.
0: But there's one final thing that we want to draw your attention to uh, when it comes to the geography terrain. Uh, Overshadowing the Crofter's Village, both figuratively and quite literally, is a giant werewood tree growing out of the center of the northern lake.
1: This massive tree stands sentinel over the whole of the setting. Some, like Asha, are kind of in ominous awe of it.
0: As described in our Werewoods Tour episode, uh, this tree has a frightening face, and it may grow more frightening still after witnessing the upcoming battle. <laughs> it's also pretty ominous. Well, I mean, most, if not all, heart trees are sure. ominous, <laughs> but you know, this one's particularly ominous. We can imagine that a lot of blood is spilt right in front of this tree.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, Unlike Asha, though, there's others like Theon that don't really have awe as much as complete and utter terror of the Heart Tree, uh, especially <laughs> after his sister Asha advises
1: Stannis to sacrifice Theon against the tree. Mm-hmm. Of course, a good chance she'd do much to avoid seeing him burned alive. We saw how, how horrible that experience mm-hmm. was for her.
0: Yeah, no, it's in, it's an interesting subtopic that we won't get into today, but it's something to think about. Why are the ravens yelling out tree in that scene? Yeah,
1: it's something that it's puzzled a lot of us, like, what's going on there? Are they, is Bloodraven or Bran, are they, have they, are they speaking through the ravens? Are they trying to encourage Stannis to do what Asha said? Some people even think it's possible that someone took over Asha's voice right then, because her voice, Theon notes that her voice gets a lot deeper, so... Conspiracy theories abound about that mm. line, but we don't have time to cover that. We have to focus on the battle. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the weather, of course. We've harped on the weather constantly for throughout this episode and the last episode, and that's just because it's so important, especially in considering uh, strategy. The weather in and around Winterfell is, of course, atrocious. It started as a light dusting. It turned out to be much, much more. And the weather isn't just bad around Winterfell. John himself reports heavy, day, heavy snows about three days south of Castle Black, around the time of Ramsay's marriage. Crackpot mm-hmm. theory there that the ram that the marriage is what pissed off the <laughs> old gods so much and they started bringing the snows down, but <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that's pretty crackpot. Anyway, back to the battlefield though. Quote:
0: The snow was still falling, even more heavily than when she'd crawled inside the tent. The lakes had vanished and the woods as well. She could see the shapes of other tents and lean-tos and the fuzzy orange glow of the beacon fire burning atop the watchtower, but not the tower itself. The storm had swallowed the rest.
3: You know, at Winterfell, the snow had also fallen and accumulated really quickly. When Theon reminisced on his escape from Winterfell in, in the, his sample chapter in The Winds of Winter, he thinks...
0: The outer wall of Winterfell was 80 feet high, but beneath the spot where he had jumped, the snows had piled up to a depth of more than 40 feet. A cold white pillow.
3: <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, if you think I about did it... I mean, not
0: sleep on that.
3: No. <laughs> I mean, the, snows are, the snow is still falling, and in Theon's last chapter in Dance with Dragons, the drifts are 40 feet high. Like 40, 40 feet, feet high. <laughs> I know, it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> It's a crazy amount, high amount of so of of snow. I mean, it's it had to like push up against the walls of Winterfell itself, pretty high up there, because the walls are eighty feet on Winterfell, right? Yeah, yeah eighty
0: feet yeah, exactly.
2: Halfway
3: up.
0: Yeah, halfway up. <laughs> yeah. So clearly, the weather will have a major impact. Any strategy must account for it, and that's why we bring it up so much, and hammer Which, it in.
1: Yeah, we can't emphasize enough that the, that many of the standard elements to a pitched battle will be missing or changed. I mean, just think about this: with winds and low visibility. Archers are just useless. The archers are not going to play a role in this battle at all. Uh, as we mentioned earlier as well, banners will be difficult to see. Trumpets might be difficult to hear. If trumpets are difficult to hear, then how are shouted commands going to work at all? You're not mm-hmm. going to hear, uh, you can hardly hear what's going on around you. So it's going to be
2: chaos.
3: Yeah, the the tactics and the strategies that the, the southern lords and knights will, that are, would be familiar with, You know, essentially lining up on a battlefield and charging headway into a line of infantry, aren't really going to apply in this battle um, because the weather is just so bad that even if they were too... Even if they could potentially line up, they wouldn't be able to see more than a few feet to their right or left and likely wouldn't be able to hear the commands either with the winds kind of swirling around. Um, and they also might be also too
1: stubborn to adapt those tactics as well. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of stubborn, uh, so we go back to Sir Hostein and the phrase. How are... They gonna proceed. This is this is who we're talking about when we say they might be too stubborn to adapt. Sir Hostein is, is a knight with a lot of experience. He's 49 years old. He's got experience. He's got some success under his belt, but he's never done anything like this. And we don't really feel strongly that he's gonna make the correct adjustments here. He's kind of gonna probably do what he's what he thinks he's always supposed to do. So. Uh, he's as far as the weather, yeah, he's not really adapting. He's just kind of toughing it out. At one point he loses uh he, he rather he loses his horse and he just keeps on going. He's got mm-hmm. bravado about it.
0: Yeah. Quote uh, no less a man than Hostine Frey, who had been heard growling that he did not fear a little snow, but lost an ear to frostbite.
3: It's really it, the weather really is just kicking Hostine in the ass in this battle. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first that's his first and the, the first major problem besides the weather is that he's a southern. Mm-hmm. Um, the Freys are badly unfamiliar with the terrain in and around Winterfell. I mean, they just had arrived at the beginning of the, uh, of A Dance with Dragons for the first time, probably in their entire lives.
2: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but they have a map, one drawn by Maester Tybalt. But there are issues with the map. For one, how detailed is Tybalt's map? Does it specify exact terrain features, distances, defensive emplacements, etc.? We don't know. All we know is that Roose announced that he knew Stannis' position in relation to Winterfell, after receiving the map from Tybalt.
3: Yeah, I, the, as uh, Theon reports, Lord Bolton unrolled the parchment. His host lies not three
1: days' ride right from here, snowbound and starving. Does that sound terribly detailed to include things that a tackle commander would need to prevail on the battlefield? Uh, I mean, what does what Maester Tybalt know about Stannis' dispositions? And, and from what we saw when, when Maester Tybalt was kind of uncovered as a traitor to Stannis, Uh, this is before Stannis has really started making his clever defense. He tells Theon, this is when he tells Theon, not yet. So, Mm -hmm. Maester Tybalt couldn't know uh, the deepest parts of Stannis' plan. Mm -hmm. But even with that map that Roose Bolton provided, the phrase, they'll still be at a clear disadvantage, even if it gives them a good idea of what's going on. Because even if the map was more detailed than simply Stannis is here, John says it well earlier in A Dance with Dragons.
0: The map is not the land, my father often said.
1: It's kind of interesting because
3: like, it really boils down to um, you know, another thing we also learned in, in, the, in the Army back in the day was that the map is just a representation of the terrain. But for those from the north, like you know, <clears throat> the phrase, <laughs> they're kind of moving into unfamiliar terrain, and this is likely going to cost them. Um, and this again speaks to Hastings' second biggest problem,
1: and that he and his men are again Southerners. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In, mad- in, me- in battle, men follow banners. That's how they. That's how the chaos of battle uh, is is reduced and controlled somewhat. Is that you can always look around in the battlefield, find the banner that you're supposed to be following, and at least you know where to be roughly. But again, snowstorm, low visibility. And, to compound it, the Frey Banners are blue and white. Uh (laughs) Like, how are you going to see that in the snow? So, that could be a major problem.
0: Mm -hmm. Hosting doesn't even command the entirety of the host. He commands the Freys and the Freys alone. There's no overall commander on the battlefield, meaning that individual contingents will follow their own commanders and march disunited.
3: In fact, it's so bad that Theon makes this observation to Stannis. Uh, He says, Frey and Manderly will never combine their strengths. They
1: will come for you, but separately. Lord Ramsey will not be far behind them. So this is potentially, if not definitely, problematic when you have an army that's supposed to fight a common enemy and they're not even united themselves.
0: (laughs) Yeah, united or disunited, though, we have to assume that Hosting Frey has a plan.
1: Yeah. It doesn't have to be a good plan, but he's got a plan. Uh, Given that the Freys are moving out on horseback, it's not hard to figure out that their plan boils down to basically step one, ride out to Stannis. Step two, cavalry charge, break Stannis' infantry line. Step three... Uh, question mark? Step four, profit. Uh, but all joking aside, well, no, not really. We're, we're going to keep joking. Uh, but it does seem pretty simple from that point of view. From the information Hostine has, he's aware of the makeup of Stannis' host, aware that they're starving. And so from his line of thinking, which is pretty straightforward, but not entirely stupid, whenever he's, when you see an opponent that's weak, and you know, out of shape and and snowbound and all that. The best play really is to just run them over. And he so he thinks he can just run roughshod, literally, <laughs> over Stannis' starving, horseless host.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: But did but also like historically in in, in medieval battles, um, that, and this is a point that George has made a couple times. That nine times out of ten, armored knights would just be able to just could crush dismounted infantry in any battle because they're totally armored up from head to toe and they're moving at their speed. Their speed is the key part of how it makes them uh, victorious on the battlefield. Um, back in the Song of Ice and Fire, people are very aware of, of how this, this works. I mean, you have um, Septon Maribold's speech about um, the broken man, but he makes a point about talking about how um, you have these poor infantry guys who get drafted into the army, essentially, and eventually they break because they see like lords and knights just come through and just smash their line every single time, and eventually the man breaks. Um, so, for, for Hosting, the advantage is huge, and the path to victory is straightforward. It's both literally and figuratively straightforward.
0: And apart from the seemingly eventual Manderly betrayal, the phrase biggest disadvantage is that Stannis is keenly aware of all of their disadvantages. That Theon made sure of that, and Stannis had figured out a lot of it on his own. So, but Stannis, well, everyone needs to win here. Uh, Stannis, though, really needs to win here. His entire cause is likely lost. We think that he has a battle plan in place. A really good battle
1: plan. A really good plans. We, we, yeah, we've got confidence in Stannis. Since we don't think that Stannis was defeated in seven days of battle, as the pink letter claims, and since we think that he is by far the superior commander, our ideas of what will happen tend to revolve around him winning, although we're certainly going to mention the uh, alternative possibilities as well.
3: The really biggest thing is we've talked about the weather a lot of times, but there's the weather has just created this a very low visibility, um, and that's something that defense that a defensive force can take advantage of, and we imagine that Stannis will be taking advantage of. Um, the defender will have the advantage in the in the winter sense. The phrase and I guess the man release need to find where Stannis is in the middle of a blinding snow and cut by wind, um, and these are the people they're trying to attack. Uh, And and if you remember recall some of the discussion we had on the terrain in and around the Crofter's Village, well, we think it'll be instrumental in the battle itself. Um, Let's, uh, yeah.
1: Well, uh, so I'm going to repeat part of a quote we used earlier. We'll say, uh, this is the one where Sandus is at the top of the tower. Though from time to time his grace was glimpsed upon the tower roof, outlined against the beacon fire that burned there night and day. The beacon fire.
2: Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The, The, um the use of the beacon fire is very
3: deliberate on, we think it's very deliberate on George R. Barnes' mm-hmm. part. Uh, he could have used night fire in the sense, because he used that several times before of um, uh, with Stannis and, and their worship of her lore.
1: Yeah, it's but, usually what they call any fires, right? That's just, <laughs> it's all night fires.
3: <laughs> right. In Stannis I army. Mean, that's exactly what it is. But in, but there's an interesting sidebar to all of this. And that's who exactly is Stannis attempting to signal to? If he has a huge big ass beacon fire on top of a, Of his watchtower, who's he trying to? Who's he trying to? Whose attention is he trying to get?
0: Possibly the Umbers, who still haven't linked up with Stannis.
1: Uh, Or he could be just—he intentionally wants to bring the enemies in. The phrase and the Boltons. He's like baiting them.
0: But why would Stannis want to signal to his enemies?
1: Stannis kind of needs to win the battle, or else his cause is all but lost. So
3: he needs a decisive engagement with the Boltons, or what he thinks of the Boltons, and he needs to decisively win it as well.
1: Yeah, there can't be any doubt. He doesn't want to just win and not. Uh, win the battle without killing a lot of the army. He needs to do a lot of damage. It needs to be something that people hear about. Stannis' reputation, as we touched on in, in Episode 1, is very, very important. So the odds on the battlefield are deciding not in his favor if he just goes with a standard plan here. Uh, so we discussed the problems he has with regarding his lack of cavalry as compared to Hostein's force. He knows that rolling the dice on a regular pitched
3: battle is a terrible gamble. Thus, Stannis is likely considering unorthodox tactics to win the battle. Uh, in his excellent essay on, the, on his blog, Meditations of Ice and Fire, Reddit user Can't Use posits a theory known as the Nightland Theory. In essence, he draws a surprising con- connection to Davos' first chapter from A Dance of Dragons.
0: In that chapter, uh, Davos reflects on a particularly nasty task- tactic that the Sister Men historically did to ships. The beacons that burned along the shores of the three sisters were supposed to warn of shoals and reefs and rocks and lead the way to safety. But on stormy nights and foggy ones, some sister men would use false lights to draw unwary captains to their doom.
1: So now, would Stannis be aware of this? Yes. Godric Borrell, uh, who is the one that Davos meets with on uh, the sisters, makes special mention of Stannis' awareness and warning on these night lamps.
0: He went so far as to threaten to hang me if it should happen that some ship went aground because the night lamp had gone black.
3: Yeah, so Stannis is, is, used, um, is aware of this tactic that was used by the Sistermen out of, out of, from uh, the Vale, and he could be planning to use this tactic in the battle itself. And we also have some potential significance as well.
0: But why would Stannis want to signal to his enemies? So, remember that quote from the start of the episode about Stannis turning the ground to his advantage. Well, here's what we think he means by it.
3: We're going to call this theory the Ice Lakes Theory. Um,
0: first, yeah, first let us draw your attention back to a quote from A Dance with Dragons.
3: I know them lakes. You've been sure. on them like maggots on a corpse. Hundreds of you. Cut so many holes in it that it's, it's a bloody wonder more haven't fallen through. Out by the island, there's places that look like the cheese the rat's been at.
0: You got to read that quote twice. (laughs) As we know, the Crofter's village is flanked by two lakes. These two lakes currently have a layer of ice over them due to the freezing weather.
3: And after being advised to allow for ice fishing in the lakes, Stannis did agree to allow for the, the fishing to occur. But was it simply to garner food for Stannis? Well, they definitely needed the food, but at some point, if not sooner, Stannis likely noticed an opportunity that was present on the lakes.
0: Yeah, there's a tactical purpose to Sandus' men drilling holes into the ice lakes. If attacked, the two position, the two locations on the battlefield that offer the greatest spot for for maneuverability for attackers are the ice lakes.
3: Yeah, and since the enemy is mounted and led by a straightforward simpleton by the name of Sir Hostine Frey, then they'll likely be looking for open terrain to attack on. I mean, that's generally how cavalry operates, is that they look for... Uh, they can't really attack well through wooded terrain because they need the horses to move quickly or else the advantage is negated. And in the battle itself, the most open terrain is the, the lakes themselves, the lakes that are, that are frozen over. These are the lakes that Stannis has conveniently drilled holes into.
2: <laughs>
0: so we think that Stannis wants the Freys to follow the night lamp and attack him, but where would the trap be sprung?
3: Um, well, we know something interesting about the, le- about the ice around the northern lake. The area with the most holes in it is the ice in and around the
1: giant werewood tree coming out of the middle of the lake. Well, why is this important? Well, consider that if the Bolton host comes at Stannis, it does nothing for his cause if only a few knights drown in the lakes. All the Boltons would do is just pull back, reevaluate where to attack. It would be a nice trick, but it wouldn't kill enough of the men to, uh, w- to win Stannis the battle in the long run.
3: Right, exactly. Stannis needs to... But if Stannis can lure the majority of the fray forces out onto the lakes without the Freys noticing many of the holes atop the ice, which is actually pretty probable considering that you have snow falling so quickly, um, yeah. it would likely cover up the, the holes, at least uh, from somebody who's just looking at it at an at um, eye, eye, eye point, um, he could potentially drown
1: the majority or the entirety of the fray army before they even have to draw a sword. In other words, if Stannis can get the Freys out to the center of the lake, or at least far enough out on it before the ice starts to break, he could kill the vast majority of them without even having to, to draw a sword.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah,
1: that's...
0: Oh, go ahead.
3: <laughs> that's only the likely strategy for the Ice Lakes battle. We, we think that Stannis is thinking two or three steps ahead of the situation at hand.
0: And while we'll delve into this at much more length in Part 3, we're going to leave you with this quote by Stannis. It may be that, you, that we shall lose this battle, the king said grimly. In Braavos, you may hear that I am dead. It may even be true. You shall find my cell swords nonetheless. Yeah,
1: we, we used that quote earlier, and we had to bring it back here because it's so interesting. What a weird thing he's saying. It, it definitely hints at some sort of trick. It may be that you hear Undead, eh? Hmm. Stannis well, knows nothing is certain, especially in battle, and that there are many possibilities. So we have come up with a little exercise here we're going to do for a few minutes. It's, uh, we've called it Wargaming. Uh, we've given a general outline of what's going to happen in the battle, but we can go farther. Uh, Obviously, no one besides George and his editors know for sure what's going to happen, but we can have a lot of fun guessing. Uh, Yeah, we think
3: that um, that George has left some tantalizing clues about how the battle will unfold, but instead of simply relating these clues, we thought we might try to do something a little different, uh, something we are terming wargaming.
1: So wargaming or military simulation is a training exercise used by commanders to try and strengthen their strategic and tactical acumen by taking sides in historical battles and coming up with their own tactics and strategies that would win the battle. Uh,
3: but of course, like, there's a saying that historians use, which is that hindsight is twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we do we'll actually be using this hindsight is twenty twenty perspective um, that helps us out um, as the commanders, as we'll be the commanders.
1: Uh, However, uh, modern military commanders also contingency plan constantly and even attempt to predict how their enemies will conduct themselves on the battlefield. We've just set this battle up to be something spectacular, and we assume that it will be just that. So to help illustrate this, we'll be taking roles of the commanders present in uh, wargaming on what they should do.
3: (laughs) And we'll break down what they think that will actually happen and how our esteemed commanders on the field will either wisely agree with us or foolishly disregard our learned tactical advice.
1: Okay, so for uh, I'm gonna announce here, I'm very pleased to announce the fact that I will be well, I'm not pleased. Wait, what am I why am I pleased announcing that I'm playing the role of Sir Hostine Frey? That's <laughs> I get to be the dumb guy. Okay. Meanwhile, and I get,
3: <laughs> I, get be, I get to be the smart guy. Well, two smart guys. Like Stanis <laughs> Baratheon and the unnamed Manderly commanders. So
1: And there's also Ramsey Bolton played by Sir not appearing in this podcast, because mm-hmm. we're still thinking that Ramsey is if he does come to out to the battle uh it's less important than what's gonna happen with the, the initial engagement with the phrase and the mandolis. So I'll start off. First of all, as Sir Hasteen, I would I should be thinking about reconnaissance, looking for the right pathway to get to the Crofters Village. I would send some men ahead to make sure that the way is clear, but I'm not too concerned about what's out there. I don't want my men to get scattered and I don't want to take too long because of the bad weather. So I'm going to be scouting, but I'm going to mostly just be heading straight forward. And then when we get to where we're going, I'm going to take a quick rec- reconnaissance of the area to make sure there's nothing lying in, nothing too obvious lying in wait for me. But I'm mostly going to be focused on where the flat ground is and where I can let my cavalry uh, do their best. So I might be looking at those lakes. <laughs>
3: But um, are you? I mean, as, as as a commander, though, you also don't want us to be attacking um, on on you. Wouldn't only commit your main force, right?
1: Right. I wouldn't. I would certainly have f- some guys at the front who are looking to. I'm not going to just blunder in there. Even though we're talking about Hostine just going right for it, he's not. I'm not going to go that blindly ahead. I'm going to send some men forward to make sure that. You know, it's like a testing the waters kind of deal. I'm going to send That's some... Another pun. Yeah, testing the frozen waters this time. Uh, so I'll send some feints up there to make sure that there's nothing, you know, there's nothing that unexpected going on. And to maybe confuse Stannis, maybe to keep him on guard as to not knowing exactly what direction my forces are going to come. Hmm. And now I'm going to, and I'm also going to, of course, be keeping a lookout for weak points, uh, like, like Barristan does at the Battle of Marine in the Winds of Winter. Uh, so, but if I don't see any weak points, I'm still going to go right for it because I'm Sir Hostie and Frey and <laughs> I'm really mad at Stannis and I want to get this over with. Well, oh, you're, you're, you're Hostie and Frey, but you're also trying to be less, a smart. You're not trying to be Sir
3: Stupid. You're trying to be Sir Smart. On the, I, uh, yeah,
1: I'm not very good at being Sir Stupid, I guess, or maybe, uh, maybe I am and I just don't realize it. That's usually <laughs> how it is with stupid people. <laughs>
3: <laughs> um... I, I'll be taking the role of Stannis. So, as as a command, as a defender, Stannis really only needs to do two things in the battle, and that's to keep his army from routing on the battlefield, and he needs to personally survive it. Um, but it seems as though Stannis is going, like we said before, is going for a decisive win in the battle itself. Uh, he needs to ensure the enemy is unaware of, de- of his defensive preparations, and for this, he actually has the cool thing in that he has Winter and the snow actually helping him out a bit there, so giving him an assist. Uh, he needs to keep that fire lit on top of the watchtower. That's really important for him. Because if he needs to direct the Frey assault across the lakes, he needs that fire there. Because that's really going to be the only thing that's uh, going to actually show where, where Stannis is on the battle, and will also direct their line of attack as well. Uh, he can't spread his army too thinly, and we don't think that'll be a big. I don't think that'll be a big issue because the army is um, it's such a small spit of land essentially, and he has about 4,000, maybe up to 4,500 soldiers there. So he won't really have too many issues with that. Um, and he, but he needs to do this also so that the enemy doesn't hit any line any single point with his cavalry uh, he has 64 horses still with him but he doesn't really need to use them in fact he shouldn't be using them at all uh, in the battle on, on, other than to pursue fleeing enemies uh, but considering this, the terrain and Stannis' plan it's inadvisable to waste his, his, these resources in, in the battle itself uh, and then another point that I would do is, as Stannis is uh, I would probably put the, uh, the mountain clansmen in the position where you want the phrase to attack him, uh, I would probably have them just shouting and making a lot of noise and trying to get the attention of of the phrase that are approaching the uh, the battle itself so you want to have kind of a um, a noise and also a, both a uh, a noise signal on the ears and also you want a, a noise and light signal essentially with through the night fire or the uh, the beacon fire and through the uh, um, the noise from the from the mountain clansmen
1: yeah um, as uh, real quick as as myself if i'm if I'm seeing that beacon fire, I'm definitely heading right for it. As as, the, as Hostine, we, we know that, from my point of view, you're snowed in over there and you're starving, and it's just a matter of finding you and crushing you. So, yeah. That, I, I'm coming right for that beacon fire if I see it, and I imagine I will. Right, and that's that's
3: the important thing for Stance, to win defensively. He needs to use, like, the unorthodox tactics we talked about earlier. Um, and for Manderley too, the, whoever the Manderleys are going to command, it's you have to talk about what's, what's the Manderley's objective here. We know that Wyman isn't participating in the battle itself, so what do the Manderley's hope to accomplish in the woods? Uh, they're not going there to assist the Freys. I mean, we, we know that, um, you know, Hosting Frey makes the um, <laughs> says that he thinks that the Manderley's are going to attempt to put a spear in his back when this <laughs> is they leave the gates. Um, they probably have their orders to, tor- to turn their swords against the Freys when the opportunity presents itself. Uh, as a Manderley commander, he would want to feign loyalty to the Freys, at least while they're close to Winterfell, so as not to draw a bolt attention to their actions. But farther away, as we talked about in Part 1, um, Winterfell, farther away from Winterfell, it's no holds barred. Um, the, but there's a disadvantage that the Mandalites have. They have only 300 soldiers, and they're pretty badly outnumbered by the 1,400-plus phrase at the battle itself, so they'd be looking for an opportunity to turn their swords on the phrase, but not in a suicidal frontal assault. Um Theon is probably right that the phrase and the Manorlees won't march together, but the intent of the Manorlees is not to attack Stannis' camp at all. If I were the Manorlea commander, I'd probably just march my host just far away from the, away from the phrase that they think we're gone, and then double back to follow them, looking for the right opportunity to attack them. Uh, the only things I worry about is uh, losing track of the phrase and being spotted by the phrase in the battle itself.
1: I, I think that uh, also, as part of my strategy since sir, since I have certainly stated my distrust of the Manderleys, I would probably leave uh, some sort of reserve force when I do make my charge at Stannis, which will happen. I would leave maybe two to 300 in reserve to guard against such a, a betrayal. Certainly at the moment of, ch- of our charge is when we would be the most vulnerable to some sort of counterattack from, right. from another angle. Uh, so even though I'm stupid... I'm. I've shown that I'm not unaware of the potential Manderly betrayal. So I'll be. I'll at least put something back there to guard against that possibility. But uh, I like
0: hearing you say that, even though I'm stupid,
1: even though I'm stupid, <laughs> but you're not <laughs> and, and, stupid as these. You got to believe in yourself. <laughs> huh? But there's also the the matter that we mentioned before. Stepping out of character here for a minute, that that's quite possible that there are a lot more Manderly soldiers out there than 300. So if I do leave a reserve force, Jeff, you may just. Overwhelm my reserve for us. I just might. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, but I mean, besides like coming off of like the war gaming, which is a kind of a cool, fun exercise, uh, we should probably talk about what we think the predict- our actual predictions are for the battle itself. We kind yeah. of move back from us and back into the characters in the series.
1: Okay, so the final step, yes, is, is these actual predictions. So we'll go with what we feel here after all this. The final, the most likely set of outcomes. Uh, Hostine and Frey will march out, three to five days, roughly, weather-dependent, of course, heading straight for Stance. Uh, prior to the main battle, the Manorlees will split from the Frey column, like we
3: also said. All the While at the same time, Stance will keep a fire lit atop the watchtower at the Crofter's village in hopes of luring his enemies to make an ill-fated attack across the ice.
1: Now, Hostine Frey, of course, being the angry fool that he is, slash I am, right? He will send his host of Frey's to where Stannis' host is located. Pretty straightforward. With or without reserve protection. <laughs> so we think that this talk about Hossein being bullheaded, strong and stupid, is, is pretty blatant. It's mentioned a bunch of times, so we don't we feel pretty comfortable making suggestions on how his personality will affect his plans.
3: Yeah, we think he's going to see the lake, note that it's frozen, and think himself clever by recognizing it as space to maneuver on. And then he'll draw his men up into battle formation, generally probably in a straight line, and launch everyone of his phrase against Stannis
1: with the possible exception of a few men held in reserve to guard against manderley encroachment, etc. But at or uh, in the middle of this lake near the weirwood tree, uh, this is where we think the ice will collapse uh, and that's when, the, you know, because of the, he- the weight of the horses, the heavily armored men and Stannis' is, m- may do something to help this out. There may be some catap- a couple of catapults hidden in the trees or in the village firing some rocks out into the middle of the lakes. That would certainly help the rocks, uh, help the ice break at the, uh, in a timely fashion.
3: And then when, after the, the ice breaks, um, the Freys are going to get pulled under the weight of their armor into the depths of the lake. Uh, that's just been telegraphed over and over again. You have men that are in, in heavy armor. They're not going to be able to, they probably don't know how to swim in the first place. But even if they could know how to swim, I mean, they're wearing 60 to 80 pounds worth of armor on them. They're probably going to just sink to the bottom of the lake.
0: Those Frey men probably do know how to swim. <laughs> oh, because that's true.
1: Right? Yeah, no, because they're like the twins.
0: But yeah. <laughs>
1: but they can't swim in armor. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so it looks like that the Stannis might actually be able to pull off a win here without any of his men really drawing a blade. Well, they'll draw their blades, but they may not use them <laughs> except to hack at the Freys who are trying to climb back out of the lake. Perhaps so they might even need, they might even not even eat. To do that,
3: I mean, especially when you have the Manderleys coming behind them. I mean, that's another thing we think that George has telegraphed is that the Manderleys are going to probably come up on the phrase behind them while they're trying to escape off the lake and kill those who are able to even make it off the off the lake itself, and retribution for the Red Wedding Mm -hmm. and for also, you know, slicing at 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 Wyman as well.
1: Yeah, a lot of a lot of reasons to hate the phrase. Let's be honest. Mm -hmm. So it could come down to. Stannis with a hefty, well, really nature with an assist from Stannis will doom the phrase uh, with with clever planning. So that's that's our that's our main prediction for the battle, and it's it's not just. Our own thinking and our own planning here, mm-hmm. it's, there's more to it.
0: Yeah, moving on from the nitty-gritty battle details that I love so much, <laughs> uh, moving on to some historical parallels, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about some actual history, which might be an inspiration to George R. R. Martin in writing this battle.
1: So there's the Battle of Novgorod, uh, which is a famous battle fought in 1242 A.D. between the Livonian branch of the Teutonic Knights and the Republic of Novgorod, which is you know, part of Russia.
3: The mostly Estonian and also some German branch of the Teutonic Knights, or Teutonic Knights invaded the Baltics in 1240 as part of the Northern Crusades in an attempt to bring Baltic pagans and Orthodox Christians into the Catholic fold. Um, in the way of the Crusaders to the Republic of Novgorod, a country that recently suffered a major defeat by the Mongol invasion of, of Rus, or modern-day Russia.
1: So the Crusader army that invaded the Republic of Novgorod were heavily armored knights, while the Novgorodians, uh, <laughs> that's the right term for them, were mostly infantry. I, I looked it up, yeah, that's the right term for them. Okay, cool. Uh, so <laughs> the Novgorodians are, are, are similar to Stannis's host in this case, and the Teutonic knights, the, the Crusaders, are playing the role of the, the heavily armored phrase. So during this decisive battle of that war, the Novgorodians deliberately retreated to wait for it, a ground of their own choosing, which happened to be a frozen lake. This was uh, led by Alexander Nevsky, a famous name. A lot of you may have heard that name before. He chose this very specific location. It was, of course, a frozen lake, so hmm, there's your parallel. Mm -hmm. Um,
3: In the ensuing battle, in the battle itself, the knights were uh, tried to attack across the lake. Um, They actually made contact with the the Novgorodians, um, but the Teutonic knights were, uh, because it was so slippery... They couldn't really get a use their horses and their uh, their heavy horse effectively in the battle, and so they started to get pushed back from the battle itself. Um, as they were pushed back from the battle, the ice beneath them cracked, and in, in the middle of the lake, um, as and several hundred of these knights fell to their deaths in their through the ice and uh, through the the broken ice. Um, thus, the Novgorodian infantry force was victorious against the heavily armored knights. Something that wasn't accomplished again in Europe. That is infantry defeating heavily armored knights for another hundred years or so.
1: So, mm-hmm. pretty big deal. This also speaks to how confident they must have been and how <laughs> easily... Uh, that's part of why the trick works, is you got an overconfident enemy.
0: <laughs> so, if the historical parallel for what we think will happen in the Wind's Winter isn't apparent yet, historians have come to call this battle the Battle of the Ice. Coincidence? <laughs> Not likely.
1: <laughs> Not likely. So, join us in a few weeks or so for Part 3, the final installment of the Battle of Ice, In it, we'll focus on the aftermath of the battle, including reactions from the Night's Watch and the rest of the North. Now, Stannis is a man who plans several steps ahead, so perhaps all his comments about being dead or hearing that he's dead, that comment that we've come back to a couple times, maybe this is part of his plan.
3: But even if he wins, he still has a lot to face. The Battle of Ice might turn out to be the cakewalk compared to what's coming. There is still Roose Bolton, a far better commander than Sir Stupid, and his Northmen who won't be affected by the weather and the unfamiliar terrain like the Freys and Winterfell itself. Few people have confidence that Stannis can assault Winterfell successfully, but Theon showed us that you don't always have to use brute force to capture a strong castle. Trickery is possible, as is betrayal from within. There are men inside Winterfell who might prefer Stannis to Bolton, especially if the former has just won a major
1: battle. Someone could just open the gates for them. There's also the matter of all these Frey and Karstark surcoats and banners just lying around. The funny thing about winning a battle the way everyone falls into the water is no one gets cut up, so you have no you have all these uniforms that aren't soaked in blood. A lot of them will end up at the bottom of the lake, perhaps, but some surely could be recovered. Not soaked in blood, like I said, though maybe a bit frozen with lake water.
0: So if a host bearing Frey and Karstark banners... Bearing white and blue twin towers and sunbursts, you know, shows up at Winterfell holding Lightbringer as a trophy with a few heads on spikes, well, visibility won't be great, so individual faces won't be clear, and as we know, men see what they want to see and expect to see, and what they'll see is a victorious, friendly army, and what do you do when such arrives? Well, you open the gates, let them in.
1: (laughs) That's all today, folks. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, we'll probably do the final episode of the series live as well, so we'll announce it about a week ahead of time so everybody can tune in. We
0: may do a Q&A um, in the video. It depends on how the episode looks. Um, if we're pressed for time, we just won't be able to do it. Um, if it doesn't work out, we might. We met, It's a Q&A feature that Google Hangout on Air um, offers us, and we'd like to try it out. Um, we, do, we would like to do... Um, Jeff is a moderator at uh, the Song of Ice and Fire Reddit, and we'd also like to do an AMA there. Um, so no matter what, you should get a chance to get some questions, whether relating to this or other stuff, at some point in the future. It's
1: true because we we get a lot of questions from you guys. Uh, send re, uh, a lot of the listener, a lot of you listeners send us some really excellent questions. Sometimes we're stumped. Sometimes we we, we have to really uh, look things up to answer them, uh, and it, the one problem with that is it, dis- it takes a little bit of time away from us preparing podcasts. I do not want to discourage anyone from sending us questions, but the reality is that sometimes we're a little slow to answer because we'd rather focus on making the next episode. We only have so much time each day, of course. Why not make take some of these excellent questions and answer them live, or at least in a recorded episode, so everyone can hear this great question and our hopefully good answer to that question. Mm -hmm. So as a lot of you guys would would have the same questions, or if it occurred to you, you would have asked the same question. So Mm -hmm. we'd like to try to get a little more interactivity with the podcast, a little more opportunity for people to ask questions, to participate. Our forums are a part of that. Uh, we did certainly announce on the forums that we would be taking questions and suggestions for each episode as they're in progress so that people can take part in the creation of the episode. So this is another uh, thing in that line of trying to uh, interact with, with yeah. you guys more. And so. as
0: always, if, you, if, you, if you're still jonesing to talk about A Song of Ice and Fire, there's plenty of places you can talk about it. There's the Reddit, uh, the Reddit sub, subreddit, uh, R-A-S-O-I-A-F there is the westerns.org forums of course though those are very very busy so you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, there are forums they're either are awesome
1: or too too, too busy. Too yeah. Much, yeah. <laughs> but our
0: forums which are, have a sizable amount of people talking there now, there's that. Of You know I'm sure there's tons of places that, uh, that you frequent. But uh,
1: Anyway so you send us questions, send us uh, feedback on this episode as well if you have some things you want to see in part three now's the best time to let us know because of course part three is the last chance for this particular topic to get any kind of play. Uh, Then we'll be moving on to other topics and uh, the World of Ice and Fire in two months. So we will see you guys again as soon as part three is ready. Thanks again, Jeff, for being here, and make sure to check out his blog and uh, give him some feedback as well. Yeah, thanks, guys, for having me. It was a lot of fun this time around. Right on. So, everybody, we'll see you next time. Valar Morghulis.